Boy Mateys. Well, now, what's to be, Lord? Alexander Nash, and with me as always is, is the man who created beer-flavored edible underwear. It's Hanky. We've now got light and full IPA flavor We're coming out soon. For men only. We don't have a ladies' version yet. The uh, hops apparently cause yeast infection, so we apologize. Zing. Yeah, all three Bam. ladies that got that, we are very sorry. <laughs> Unplanned bit. Well, that was funny. Yeah. Maybe I'm ready for Second City. I don't know. No. All right. Welcome to Death by <laughs> DVD. I am uh, Hank, who's not ready for Second City. Inequivocally, no. Yeah. No, 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 no. Maybe if Carlos Mencia still had a show, I'd be all right for that. But uh, wow, that's an inside. I insulted myself. Worse than you ever have on the show, and I basically yes. God, well, that's well, you know I'm funnier than that. I'm not that funny. I'm local funny, locally funny, but I'm not. You're funny in your borough specifically. Yes, I'm, <laughs> in any town USA in my borough, I'm very specifically funny. But this is a new segment of the new Death by DVD, one of our new fun-filled specialty shows that is one specific topic. The greatest hits of Death by DVD, where we will make a ever-growing, probably forever-growing list of movies we consider to be the greatest of all time, which many of them are probably on the IFC greatest list of all time, also, because we're unoriginal fucking schmucks. Well, because sometimes art is just, like, worldly fucking impressive. Yeah, sometimes you gotta agree with what the masses say, because sometimes the masses are correct for a reason. Not always, you know, not in a political manner, but when it comes to art, you know, a lot of stuff is faff, and a lot of people... People will say this is one of the best movies of all time because everybody says that. And some of them, I, I really like uh, Casablanca is regarded as one of the greatest movies of all time. And it's great. It is. It's really terrific. But comparing it to other movies, even of its era, that might have been blacklisted or just not dealt with as successfully or, or were considered trash because they were horror or explicit is very unfair and there are just much broader movies that aren't always like uh, several on this list tonight i don't think would be considered anywhere on uh, a list of this sort but they have merit and redeemable value and points and i guess that's the point of the show we're going to discuss why they're good uh talk about the movies themselves we're going we're getting back to our original format with talking about movies but first we have to do recently seen hank Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I, I, you know, our new segments, on top of the new segments, they just got me all bugaboo. What did you see? 
Did you see anything relatively good? I just watched this like two hours ago, and it was a movie called Point Blank, not the Lee Marvin version of it. No, kind of a new updated version starring uh, Anthony Mackie from The Avengers and Frank Grillo. So it, it, it is Avengers. a remake? <laughs> uh, it's uh, based on the story of Point Blank, which is in, based it on also before that. Um, it also credit Frank Grillo from what was it he did the sequel of? Oh, The Purge. The Purge, yeah. And he did two sequels. He did. He's done a bunch of sequels. Frank Grill is kind of everywhere. He's become he's an all right action guy. Video, uh, like star at this point. He's just stars in a bunch of direct video like this, action movies and stuff. This probably will come off a bit insulting, and uh, I, I don't really care. But he kind of reminds me of that perfect video box art of just the '90s really bad uh, Cinemax action guys. You know, the Billy Blanks action yeah. guys. He looks like he could be in an Andy Sedaris film, most definitely. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, Point Blank was directed by Joe Lynch, who uh, has his own podcast that we won't speak of tonight. Um, he also directed uh, Mayhem, which is on Shutter right now, which is a good movie. I actually am impressed with Joe Lynch as a director. I think he follows us. Uh, yeah, don't quote me on that, but I think Joe Lynch follows us on Twitter, so he might be aware of what we are. It's possible just because he's, I mean, he's a fellow brother into this whole fucking community of film love and loving right, We're all freaks and geeks. All that shit. But um, each movie he's made has been and I don't mean this as an insult, most definitely. They have been very adequate, and it's hard to get adequate. Trust me, it's hard to be an adequate filmmaker. Um, he does ha kind of have a visual style, but overall, he is a very good director for hire. Um, he also directed, oh, what in the hell was the name of that movie? Sal Mahaya, he directed it. I can't remember right now. It was on Netflix a couple of, like, maybe a year ago. It's it's really good. Check it out. It's an action movie uh, with Selma Hayek. That I, what is it? It's um, it's her Asking name. Asking the wrong guy, buddy. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it, but it was good. And Wrong Turn 2 was all right. And he's done some pretty good movies. And Point Blank is very adequate. Can I interrupt you real quick? Go for it. Uh, Adam Green and Joe Lynch do a fan commentary for Friday the 13th Part 4. And it is fantastic. It starts off... And I'll just go ahead and say really annoying because they're they're major fans and they're kind of conceited with their uh, level of fame uh, in the scene, in the horror scene. And it starts off a little overbearing and they are very, you know, friendly and, you know, dude bro and joking for a while. Then they actually get deep into the mythology of the movie and Jason and it becomes really incredible. And it's kind of a fun ride to watch the movie with if you can get past the beginning. Um which I don't, again, mean in an insulting way, but hey. Well, I mean, Joe Lynch is very, he's an excitable kind of cat. He, like, he, he like, yelps and <laughs> jumps around on his podcast and is very excited. Um, but as a director, like, he does, the, like, Mayhem, I would call probably a three and a half star movie out of five. And Point Blank is probably, it's a three. It's about average for me. Um, and what made it work? Because the story is nothing. It's a story you've seen over and over again. Corrupt cops, people on the run, blah, 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 blah. There's nothing particularly interesting within the story at all. But Joe Lynch actually makes the movie interesting with how he directed. And a lot of it is the music he chose, because there's a lot of 1980s um, pop songs. Uh, the, the very first thing... Um, 
when the first title credit comes up, it is uh, Black Flag Rise Above is the song. So instantly you've got me hooked right there. And then progressively throughout the film, he has more 80s music that really drives because it makes it a lot more entertaining and makes it a lot more seem kind of um, humorous. And this movie needed humor desperately because, like I said before, the plot is just it's almost nothing. It's just kind of a typical action plot. But overall, I think Point Blank was it's worth a watch. It's slightly above average. It's about a three star movie out of five. Slightly above on average. Netflix. On just Netflix like me right now. Good old Netflix. I pay for it and rarely use it. All sorts of things are on there. A cavalcade of things that I just I completely ignore, which leads us into what I saw this week and not for the first time. But I saw Easy Rider in theaters for the 50th anniversary 4K restoration, which was great. It was done from the film's original 35 millimeter black and white negatives. The soundtrack was completely restored from the original mono, which is great. The soundtrack of Easy Rider and why I chose to talk about this. Uh, if I need to discuss what Easy Rider is about, it's two hippies living the Horatio Alger American dream. Literally, get rich or die trying. They sell some cocaine to Phil Spector and they drive across the United States on their motorcycles, uh, coming across very different characters and peoples of all walks of life. One of the greatest characters, I think, in film history, played by Jack Nicholson, the attorney George Hatton in a small Texas town who joins them on their trip across America to go to Mardi Gras. They decide to go to the best whorehouse in Mardi Gras where they meet Karen Black and take acid. And it ends tragically, Shakespeareanly. That's Easy Rider. It's a classic film, I think, one of the most definitive films of the 60s and even the 70s. And later on, I will bring up uh, a comparison between Easy Rider and one of the movies I've picked for the greatest of all time. I think sincerely Easy Rider is one of the greatest movies of all time. And despite being filmed in 1968, written by Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda, directed by Dennis Hopper, and released in 1969, it's, it's almost more important now to watch and to understand what that movie is about especially even the hippies they encounter at the commune at the beginning of the movie and just how people truly are in the wild and how things haven't changed. And uh, the character George Hatton, played by Nicholson, has a great line of dialogue where he says, you know, this country used to be great, and I just don't know what happened to it. Something we hear echoed nonstop in this day and age, and it's something really great to reflect on. I think if uh, Dennis Hopper was still alive, he would be... Uh, he'd kill himself with the, today's political air and people ignoring this art and not taking time to notice it. The uh, restoration will be available probably by Criterion sometime in September. Yeah, Easy Rider. I mean, it's a classic. That's a, I will call it a dad movie. Um, and what I mean by that is it's a movie that my father, who passed away some years ago at this point now, like maybe eight years ago, um, it was one of his favorite movies of all time because he was a motorcyclist his whole life his yeah, i was gonna were, say uh, i heard a rumor that your dad was like the leader of an outlaw motorcycle gang in <laughs> indiana you know it's he, a little bit different it's a little bit different than like outlaw because then you like you start to think of stuff like the hell's angels and like the you know the the one percenters and the, that kind of stuff and this was a like late 50s early 60s biker gang because one of his another one of his favorite movies was the wild one the marlon brando and it was that kind of gang sure you had black leather jackets but you had like the the weird hats and just kind of the just kind of greasers in general he was in that game but the gang was the black shadows 
which is a pretty badass gang name. Sounds pretty tough. Your dad sounds like he was a pretty tough customer and obviously had a great taste in film and allowed you to... He was not tough at all. (laughs) He was a pushover guy. I just imagine this tall guy with a pompadour just beating someone with a chain. You know, it's a great imagery. Um, But he loved that film. He loved Easy Rider. Um... He whoa! What was another great biker film that he loved? He loved a bunch of different biker films, um, but he like it was always particular. Larry Bishop to, did or was in a never shit saw ton of them. <laughs> um, well, yeah, Larry Bishop was in a shit ton of biker movies along with Peter Fonda. A lot of exploitation in the late sixties, early seventies, low rent stuff. Larry Bishop is really the the, the the king of random biker movies, and uh, him and Tarantino a couple of years ago, well, gosh, like fifteen years ago, did a question biker movie that I some time ago did a whole solo show about that no one I hope to God will never hear the day of again that's up to you my friend that has nothing to do with me that's our um, sound guy Raul if he gets to mastering it that'll happen but but yeah I have a lot of love for Easy Rider um, funnily enough another one of his favorite movies of all time was um, Silent Running with Bruce Dern so that tells you anything about the man he loved bikers and hippie space movies all at the same time. Um, but Easy Rider is it's it's an American classic. I'm sure we'll probably talk about it on a show like this coming up in the near future. We'll get a little bit more in depth into Easy Rider and all of its meanings and freedom and blah, all that. Shit. Yeah, we we have enough political error on tonight's episode. And uh, like I said, this will be a whole new segment. The greatest hits of death by DVD. So there'll be a part two and three and four whenever we can't think of something else riveting and themed and fun to do. So do you want to do you want to go first or you I are? Yes, I can go first. You're technically since the introduction states. So the host. So, I mean, yes, <laughs> I'm the host, but you like tend to talk more. So I'd say it's more of a it's a dueling thing. I, yeah. The host thing started a long time ago when I had like an inchworms amount of fame. So that's when I became the host, quote unquote. Um, I think I, these new shows, I shut up a lot more. I think on the live show, not having cues, you know, like I mentioned, us being in the studio, you're still you keep showing up naked. I didn't know you. I sent you a couple memos about it, but being able to uh, see body language really makes things different. Yeah, I mean, it helps a little bit. I like but especially when I'm talking, I can't look at your face because I look, got to look dead center of this fucking microphone so it picks up right uh, and i'm very unattractive and i understand that now the sideburns are an interesting touch do not look like jeff skunk baxter anymore but uh yeah uh they're not quite lemmy but there's something uh, a little bit more glenn danzig Ooh, don't like that don't like that at all are you not having a dirty black summer uh no it's been more of a wicked pussycat yeah what a bat dancing reference (laughs) oh god oh no fuck it i'll start this shit well i'll start derail all right what and as hank said before these are movies that we consider to be some of the greatest movies of all time if you haven't seen them it's something you definitely have to check out some movies you definitely stuff. I don't think we have any movie that leaves the 80s, so we're not going to consistently say spoiler because these are most of most all of them are classics. I think every movie on this list has a Criterion version available. So if that says anything, 
uh, which it, it might not to you, but to me, Criterion tends to be. I, I'm picky. I like Criterion a lot. And for a, like a 40 year old movie, who gives a shit? Seriously, like, yeah. Just watch it anyway. You're gonna enjoy it. It's one of the greatest movies of all time. For Christ's sakes, please grow up a little bit. All right, I'm gonna go with from 1977, a little Paul Newman film called Slapshot. Um, what are you drinking there, Hank? I I got some red stuff in a glass. It's it's some homebrew. We're gonna try and start selling. It's uh, Johnny Rad's home brand wine. With your very obvious bottle cap noise. Oh, any wine that has a cap, that's great wine. I'm trying to add some flavor to the show. I I like the thing commentary with all the the bottles and the lighters, you know, to spin that bad boy. Let's the audience know that we're getting funky. (laughs) I'm not getting funky. I'm getting high. Um, All right. Slap shot. Classic hockey film, one of the greatest movies of all time. Hank, what do you have to say about it? <laughs> no, well, I, seriously. I can just um, run into Slapshot. I mean, it's it's funny. I was watching it, and this is just my stupidity. I, I love Paul Newman, and one of my favorite movies growing up was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And I hadn't watched Slapshot, I don't know, in a, in a good 10 years. And it's one of those things that you really, really love. It is a hysterical movie, and it's still to this day is one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. I, I will start you laughing. You haven't watched it in 10 years? I, well, I, I rewatched it this week and I just couldn't help but, you know, think the entire time, gosh, this really reminds me of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And it's, hey, guess what? George Roy Hill, the director, also directed the previously mentioned movie. And it's got a lot of Hollywood style. And it, what makes it particularly interesting is even to today's standards, it is one foul movie, but it is it's just perfectly shot like this million dollar budget movie. And the fact that it stars Paul Newman as a, the, a player coach for a minor league hockey team makes it even uh, that much better. That's the cherry on top of the cake on top of several real hockey players, a former New York Rangers coach, I think current Red Wings coach. I, I, I don't know. I've not kept up with hockey for years appears in the movie, the Hanson brothers, which only two were brothers. One's a different player, all minor league hockey players. It's filled with Michael Antkeen stars in the movie, twin peaks, Michael Antkeen, who was a semi-professional hockey player and scouted by the New York Rangers and decided to become an actor who now probably wishes he'd played hockey. Well, like you, you totally stepped on my joke though. Cause, um, you haven't watched it in 10 years and that's when I was going to ask do you feel shame I I, I ruined the joke you should (laughs) high stick me um yeah Slapshot is just like it's a terrific movie I was I'm not a sports guy I've never been into sports I consider Slapshot probably the best sports movie of all time you were briefly a hockey fan hockey yeah in like the 90s I watched a little bit of hockey here and there but I'd but you know why I started watching hockey? Fucking Slapshot. Slap yeah. <laughs> That's why I started watching hockey. And it's it's so misleading, and a, a kind of a funny fact about it is when Slapshot came out, most diehard NHL fans were somewhat against the movie because of how violent it was. And now even to this day, like when I got into hockey in the 2000s, I got into it expecting this violence and uh, just, I don't know, wild boxing on the ice. And you can't even check somebody at the beginning of the movie. They show you all these offenses of high sticking and hooking. And you uh, half of these things are like fifteen thousand dollar fines now on the ice that you can't get away with. So hockey has become to be. Yeah, it used to be a way more dangerous sport. It was I mean, people 
who had no real skill at hockey. All they could do is really skate, and some of them not very well were just there. I mean, that's the classic goon of hockey is somebody who's just there to be an enforcer and to fight and to possibly take out your best player. They used to have – that was your position was just to start shit. You know fucking – Al Pacino was uh, he was offered the lead for this and decided to pass it up and apparently just to this day really regrets it. And, you know, thank God. Thank God that happened. Al Pacino on ice. And I guess that's why he didn't want to take the role. They asked, well, can you skate? And he got very offended that they assumed he couldn't skate. But it is somewhat necessary for the role. I mean, it's not. Oh, it's absolutely necessary for the role. Yeah, I don't think I don't see Al Pacino being a character named Reggie Dunlop. Yeah. That's not a Pacino name at all. This <laughs> I just, is I couldn't not, stick a minute. not only do you have like some amazing character names, Reggie Dunlop, Ogie Oglethorpe, but you've got some of the greatest and foulest quotes of, of all time. The movie starts off completely quotable. And I mean, just even to the first hockey match, what's wrong with you? I got shit faced on the bus and that prick keeps playing me. Just the next time somebody fucking checks me, I'm going to puke. It's it's great. The whole movie you can remember and quote and just have a blast with. Uh, possibly my favorite quote is when after Paul Newman has started a bunch of shit, this um, the player coach and the other team just tracks him down and says, Dunlop, you suck cock. And his response. And I use this to this day. All I can get. I consistently will laugh every time that the Hanson brothers uh, make their first appearance and beat the hell out of the Coke machine and go back to their hotel room and have their toys out and. Reggie goes back to the owner and the first words he screams is they're fucking retards. They brought their toys. And despite how insensitive that may be, I lose my shit every goddamn time. <laughs> the Hanson brothers uh, are, are essential to the movie. But so what they're is essential hockey at this point? Yeah, definitely. And they the, what's unfortunate is there's a, a great deal. I think there's four slap shot sequels at this point, all only starring the Hanson brothers. And they get consistently worse as they progress, kind of like oh, the Hellraisers. Terrible. Like the Hellraiser series, as it goes on, just count the number, and that's how bad it gets on a scale of one to ten. Well, like what the movie was able to capture, I think, was they were able to capture a moment in time in something like hockey, minor league hockey. And not only that, all the very interesting characters that you can have on a minor league hockey team and what it means to be on this team in this dying steel town. Um but you were they were also it was a woman actually wrote it nancy dodd um she was able to capture all that but yet still make it incredibly funny to where hockey players are not known for their humor particularly oh i mean fucking a good portion of them are russian and don't speak very good english um but she was able to yeah i was gonna say let's be honest here this movie is a bit uh, dated in the sense that there were a lot of Americans that played. And back in the day in the 70s, 60s, even into the 80s, you did have. Yeah, you had a lot of Canadians, but you had a good amount of Americans from, you know, uh, Michigan, upstate New York, places like that, uh, Washington State that all played hockey. Uh, a lot of New Yorkers grew up playing hockey because the Rangers were much more successful in that era. They were more hockey was much more of a national sport it was still up there with baseball boxing was really big in the 70s and 80s and then going into the 90s and 2000s these things faded out of fashion as did the movies i mean people aren't going to watch hockey so they're not going to put slap shot on tnt at two in the morning anymore but i mean i think it's so much more than a movie about hockey because it's more about it's all about relationships characters. 
and how the characters interact with each other and how apt they got a lot of the portrayals of those characters of how the the team treats the goalies how some people like Gretzky Gretzky is basically Ned Braden in this film because Gretzky is was notorious when he played of not wanting to fight it's not even that he didn't want to fight he didn't even want to get touched he didn't like want to Sidney get Crosby now yeah it's just he was so much of he was no for the love of the game it's all about precision and skating and that's just I mean that's a good portion of hockey, but another good portion of hockey is just how physical the sport gets. And Slapshot is all about how physical the sport gets and how much of a kind of a freak show hockey can get at certain times. Like when you bring in the Hansons who are just basically enforcers, they're just there to kick fucking ass and basically stir up attendance for this dying minor league hockey team. And we also need to mention uh, Struther Martin as the role of the, um, the, team i guess gm or the uh the manager is the owner more or less yeah well, he's not the owner because the owner was the chick who um oh yeah yeah house and and another very insensitive scene where you better get married real quick before that kid gets a cock in his mouth yeah that's really insensitive that scene and it's um, one of the things that makes this movie is seeing paul newman be just so lewd and you know you're gross and for me like you're at the grocery store and you look down at the salad dressing you know and i i i hear in my head yeah all i can get and hear the sucking cock joke i don't think of friendly neighborhood paul newman with the natural fucking popcorn, I think of Slapshot. And it's funny how that works because I'll buy that Paul Newman frozen pizza and go home with my dumb little Slapshot pizza and call it that. It brings me joy, the small stuff. I appreciate the small things and the nothing. And there's nothing particularly special about how the movie is shot. It's shot in a very 70s way. It's a very um, Hollywood movie. It looks like any big 70s Hollywood movie. But a big portion of that is because we're focusing more on character and character interaction in the film. And but at least the hockey is shot well. Uh, it's shot to to make the sport seem fairly exciting as it's going on in the movie. Even though it's not particularly imperative that you know anything about hockey to watch the movie. I didn't when I first saw it, and I loved every second of it. And I learned about hockey from this movie and how it works. You know, and basically how. Because hockey players are just such a fucking weird bunch. They're like Tony Twist, uh, lead enforcer of the St. Louis Blues in the 90s, was he ended a goalie's career. He would like he beat the shit out of some people. Nicest guy in the world. Had a bunch of charities he ran. Like most hockey players are some of the nicest guys in the world, but they are also like very fucking physical on the ice. And it's just this duality of these people. And another thing is Paul Newman rocks some really interesting looks in this movie. He's running around in a fur coat through a good portion of it and just some really rocking 70s clothes. Yeah, I think he kind of got carte blanche with whatever he could wear. And that was some <laughs> of his, his personal clothing. One really, really interesting fact about the movie is the relationships between characters and people that you're in an era, and, and to this day, if you're a sports fan, uh, athletes are treated like rock stars to an extent. And so you've got these touring athletes that are, you know, going from city to city. The game ends. They're all beaten up. They want to drink and they want to fuck. And then they go home to their 
wives. And you've got the interaction of the like one of my favorites is Michael Onkeen and his wife and they're falling in love or rekindling their romance or it falling apart. It's, it's, it's an integral part of the story because it shows that these people are humans. And what you were just bringing up is how vicious some of these athletes have to be. But in real life, they're 100 percent great people, even like looking at boxers, guys like George Foreman. Uh, Mike Tyson, who formerly in life, he I, I, people bring up Mike Tyson all the time. Like he's a neighborhood friendly guy. I just like to remind people he did go to prison for rape uh, and he, he he has done his time, but he is still a rapist. But he now dedicates a lot of time to charity. I would just say he's the nicest person and the best example. Muhammad Ali also is kind of a dick, but I don't know, like Joe Frazier, people that weren't publicly out there being negative. It's like acting. So you can portray a role and be a really bad guy, and people will always stick that with you. And remember, you were a thug on the ice and were essentially uh, an enforcer and hurting people. But in real life, you can have a completely different sense of who you are, and the movie portrays people as assholes in real life. Like Reggie, he's kind of an asshole no matter what, but he's a very charming Total asshole. dick. You, yeah, he's, I mean, that's that's his he's power, a, though, is his charm. That's how he gets all these people like to band together behind him so he can try to save the team even though there's like no shot of actually saving this team well you can see that he is a dick because that's what life has made him and it's the card he's dealt he knows it's his story it's already written it's essentially in the can and he's just fulfilling his role because he knows that's what he has to do it's what he is he knows some people just in real life and in, in film uh which all life is is a movie in the first place you know you might know your role and you fulfill your role you you stick to what you're doing he's not just a player he's a coach he knows that these guys are looking up to him so he fulfills that even if he knows he's wrong and like throughout the movie michael onkey kind of realizes that's going on and instead of quitting sticks with him because that's what you got to do you sometimes even if you're going to lose you got to you, you got to win to lose or lose to win metaphorically i'm not good with these metaphor things and like when you're talking in the greatest movies of all time like as i was bringing up before with how it's shot is not very impressive particularly or anything what makes slap shut so entertaining is the humor that's involved in it and Far be it from us to sit here and just quote jokes over and over again from the movie. But, I mean, that's basically what makes the movie great is just how the characters interact and how the humor comes from all these interactions. And it's it's hard to explain. You can't really get into, like, well, the plot's real good or uh, the special effects are great. There's none of that in it. It's just it's mostly character interaction, like most 70s films, and that's kind of what makes this one so great. So you're not going to hear a lot of talk about Slapshot otherwise uh, from us. We're going to really break it down because there's not much to break down of the film. It's just really entertaining. It's filmed very well. It it looks very nice. It's a clean movie. It's followed directly by a sequel starring Stephen Baldwin. So from, you know, speak of that. Yeah, from its standpoint, uh, and especially in the 70s, I would say it's one of the best movies of the 1970s. It's the best sports movie, I will agree. It is better than Rocky. It is the best sports movie. Fuck you, Rudy. Slapshot is the best sports <laughs> movie. And it is, like, on a 100 list, I wouldn't rank it toward the top, but it is really one of the top 100 best movies of all time. And, you know, we wouldn't, I don't feel, on our top 100 list have a lot of sports movies. So, Slapshot, here you go. Yeah, I mean, and again, it's a it's a comedy, so humor is very subjective. So enter at your own risk. Are you interested in hockey and Paul Newman, Michael Onkeen's ass? Look it up. 
Yeah, you want to see a not so subtle Sheriff Harry Truman check out 1977 Slapshot. So I guess it's my turn. Oh, it's hmm. your turn, baby. I don't know. Should we stay in the 70s or should we just go? Go it's anywhere, call, man. I think we're going to go a little bit farther back in time. We're going to go to 1955 Night of the Hunter, the only movie directed by Charles Lofton, the very... I think essential to classic horror name. He was the first hunchback of Notre Dame and has a great deal of credits throughout his life. He, I feel, would have probably gone on to make more films, but not trying to speak poorly of him, sort of on a fluke ended up making this movie as good as it was because of his inexperience as a director. Night of the Hunter is about a man that commits a crime. He's sentenced for the crime and while in prison meets a preacher named Harry Powell, who eventually marries this man's wife after getting out of prison and hearing about some hidden money and hunts his children for the money. It's a classic fairy tale. It's a Grimm's fairy tale of absolute violence and atrocity and just the negativity of man, the man in black, this mythical figure that stands on the rooftop watching and judging you. It's it's just this omnious figure. Uh, Young described it in dreams as this father figure that haunts you and judges you and treats you negatively. And it's a representation by Robert Mitchum of Harry Powell. He's got love and hate tattooed on his knuckles. That's where you get that from, everybody. When you see somebody with love and hate tattooed on their knuckles or from an old film or something, it's from Night of the Hunter. So. Yep. Platoon has a really great nod towards Night of the Hunter, and we'll talk about Oliver Stone a little bit later, weirdly enough. But, um, yeah, Charles Lofton uh, got diagnosed with cancer, I think, right toward the end of this movie being made. It's one of the most uniquely shot and made films ever, and again, as it sort of represents a very grim storytale in the sense of the Grimm brothers and it being grim in general. It's just fantastical and phantasmagorial to look at. It's insane. The movie... Weirdly, he didn't he didn't know what he was doing, despite having been on set for multiple movies. So he brought his editor and the guy doing the score all on set and would just produce sketches nonstop of I want to do this. I want the scene to look this way. And they would just go and build sets around it every other day and come up completely with what he wanted. And by having the editor on set, they could translate how he wanted to do things. They ended up using an experimental stock of film experimental for the time, which became kind of an industry tactic later on that separated the whites from the black and gave it this very odd translucent look and made everything like David Lynch tries to make things look very dreamlike, very surreal. And none of it was 100% intentional. It just ended up happening in this beautifying way. And Charles Lofton gets this credit of being one of these brilliant greatest directors of all time. But a lot of it goes to the screenwriter, James Aggie, the original writer of the novel, David Grubb and, uh, I just cannot remember the name of the editor. His name was, I believe, his last name was Cortez, as a Spanish guy, uh, and he, he he did a he did a lot of Cecil B. DeMille movies, a lot of um, Orson Welles movies. Fantastic old school Hollywood editor. The credit really goes to these guys behind making just such a visionary, fantastic film and a sense of horror. An early horror, it's one of the scariest movies ever made from the perspective of a child, and it allows you to become a child because the two heroes of the movie are a young boy and his sister, and you're watching them struggle and escape essentially the big bad wolf, and you feel it. You feel their fear. You feel things from the naive perspective of a young child, and it really terrifies you. It, it's 
it's a great movie. Well, that's also a thing for 1955. You did not have child, like children in danger in films, and it kind of makes everything a lot more kind of like um, this is a weird comparison, but something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when you don't trust your director to not kill everyone in the cast or show you something horrible like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's the same thing goes for Night of the Hunter, where you're kind of led into this weird world and you don't trust the director not to kill the children. They feel like they're in imminent danger at all times throughout the film. Especially and, after Shelley Winter's demise. I mean, she's one of the leads on everything. I mean, all the advertising, even every poster, it's got Shelley Winters on that. It was huge at the time. Uh, you do not expect that whatsoever. And she's almost ritualistically sacrificed it's a very bizarre scene in this very beautifully lit almost chapel like room and then later on when you find her body it's almost like uh, the, the painting of Ophelia going downstream after she's committed suicide with her hair upward and caught almost like sea moss or whatever the fuck it's called it's beautiful it's just so articulate and, and insanely haunting it's it that itself is chilling the visual representation of horror is very present with this movie and with the first viewing of this movie, like you just hit the nail on the head with the Shelley Winters um, when the kids discovered the body scene where she's floating in the water. That's when I like really perked up. And went, oh, yeah, the, you get the I'm, I'm in for something here. And then the Tim the, Allen the sound. Movie, well, it gets progressively more dreamlike and the way it's shot because it's shot all on sets. Even well, the outdoor stuff is all shot. on. This sets. is something I was going with. It's not even so much that it's dreamlike. You start to go more into the perspective of a child and you start or seeing play. Things. It's well, almost it's, like a play the entire time. It really does come off beautifully as a play. But what I, th- I just love to think is as. You're you're more you're experiencing fear and it becomes more dreamlike because it's going more and more through this eight year old boy's perspective and what it would look like to this eight year old boy. And there's this amazing scene where they think they finally have gotten some space from Harry and they're sleeping in a barn and he comes up on his horse and it's this great scene and it's a it's black and white meeting together. And when black is in this movie, it is black. It's just dark. And he's on a horse. He sings this whole song, the whole movie, leaning on Jesus. Uh, I I can't do a good Robert Mitchum. And he slowly appears on the horse and the boy looks up and goes, oh, my gosh, do you not sleep? And you realize, again, you're through the perspective of a child. You have to remember being afraid of a shadow in your room at night and how terrifying it could be if light came through as a car passed by. And the movie just captures this essence. ah, It's terrifying. Yeah, and I think a lot of what works for me in the film is the way it's shot. I think in lesser hands, uh, if it was shot a little bit more normal as things were shot in 1955, it wouldn't have the impact that it it still has today. If it was Um, in color, it would have been just a tragedy. Yeah, color would have completely drowned out the entire movie. It wouldn't have... Charles Lofton probably wouldn't have done the picture if it was in color, that he was very adamant to do this. Uh, I think I don't remember who he initially I think he wanted to play Harry initially. And um, Charles Lofton playing Harry would have been a terrible idea. uh, He was talked out of that. And I think they wanted to pull in Lawrence Olivier and he Lofton. Terrible idea. 
Lofton hated that, and then somebody suggested Robert Mitchum. And uh, somewhere along the line, Lillian Gish got involved, which is pretty cool. She hadn't done a picture in a really long time, and she's old school Hollywood. Uh, worked up until the late 80s and then died in the early 90s. But her involvement, her character is one of the richest, I think, in the movie. Somebody that truly fights evil and is a representation of good and hope, which, uh, before I let you finish, reminds me of another really cool thing. The movie starts with all these children of mixed races faces in the sky and then Lillian Gish kind of as a narrator an opening narrator describing what's going to happen in the purity of children and how children are the future and it's this really neat twist that somehow works just these kids faces floating in the night sky and it comes off kind of really goofy and weird and then by the time you get to the third part the final part of the movie it makes sense because the whole point is experiencing fear like you were a child again yeah, and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with the childhood thing because it the entire film ends up looking things almost end up looking like toys. Thing every like any little object ends up looking like something more mythical. It doesn't end up looking like a, a reality based thing. It all ends up looking like like I was saying before, like a play or this augmented reality that nothing seems particularly normal at all which even simple things fear. like there's a, a scene where harry's traveling after the children and there's a small rabbit in the frame and it, it just abs- it looks like an animatronic and obviously that wouldn't have existed or even been an option at the time and it's uh, again the i can't remember the type of film they used but at the time it was new and just would separate and almost add a layer a translucent layer between colors or in this case lack thereof so where there's white it will scale down to gray and then just become an absolute black or an absolute white and the the transitioning between those two and how things were captured is just absolutely unique and that's kind of the thing when people talk about black and white films that it sounds like some old fucking fogey shit of oh things are only were great when they were black and white not all things but a lot of things were great in black and white night of the hunter night of the living dead is a good example where the maltese falcons a great film that could have been shot in color and it would have been awful in color well the important thing about black and white photography is contrast and you have a lot of these more modern films because they did um Fury Road, they released a black and white version of it. Oh, yeah, that was a chrome edition. What's the point? Because you didn't shoot it in black and white. And when you shoot in black and white and you know how to control black and white film, it's all about maintaining a separation of hues and contrast. And when you get into color, it ends up just kind of all washing together. In black and white, if you know what you're doing, you can really make things stand out. You really know how to... And that's really... A, like how you light a film you I still do, kind of light a film like you're shooting it in black and white I do believe the black and chrome Fury Road somebody set down, and I'm not defending it because I thought it was a little unnecessary also but I, I believe somebody set down and hand colored it back into black and white so it's not just like a transfer done instantly on Photoshop but still if you had shot the whole film on black and white for the reason of releasing it I'd buy into that gimmick you know two different sets of the film filmed at the same time or whatever but like Clerks was they went out of their way to film it in black and white to show you the monotony of the daily and life of cheaper yeah it was cheaper but it served that purpose of showing you how boring being a clerk was and it worked for the film but nothing about that movie is specifically for black and white one of the biggest reasons it worked is because they shot the movie at night 
Yeah, and like yeah, something like Clerks shows you a director who does not know anything about black and white film or how to light for black and white film, how it gets all kind of muddled together. When you really know how to black use black and white, it's all about your contrast. And like Night of the Hunter uses its contrast fucking beautifully. I think it was brought up sometime during production of, of doing this in color and was instantly you know brought back to the, the the way this is being sketched and it's unique how this came up with that they would shoot they would do the dailies and every night the lead cast and charles laughlin lofton would meet together and have dinner and come up with what they were going to do the next day to the extent that some of the scenes were drawn on like dinner tables and napkins and they would come up with these elaborate sketches which now would be called storyboarding really wasn't a thing back then and the next day they would just work together completely to come up with this idea because in a sense charles knew what he was doing but just he some people can act and fluently do that their entire life harry dean stan has actually said this before i could direct but my brain is just not meant for it i can't do i'm not meant to do that type of thing it's too much work and charles came into this with a great idea i think if he hadn't you know died of cancer and had made another picture he would have never touched anything of this level so it's sort of unique this was his only shining moment as a director and it becoming just i think it's a quintessential movie not even if you want to be a film nerd if you just want to get into movies it's quintessential it's beautifully shot it needs and to a be a appreciated for yeah. a change like and, an actual uh, villain that you fucking hate it's not in the, like this gray area it's not Thanos it's, well, it's a uh, villain that's been uh, reproduced that, for since then and uh, movies we will consistently talk about Richard Stanley the man in black the idea of the red Walter right hand too. yeah the just evil lurching man like I was saying before uh, somewhere in the back the strange hitchhiker that the doors sing about the stranger on the road a bad man doing bad things it really comes from Night of the Hunter yeah and Night of the Hunter has since been just kind of thrown to the wayside I mean there's some people who still really appreciate it but it's not looked upon as the same classic as something like Casablanca as you were saying or uh, any of those other like major Hollywood classic films, it's just kind of like, you know, there's Night of the Hunter. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? It's Night of the Hunter. It's it should be up there with Gone with the Wind and all the rest of that shit. You people just like it's better than Citizen Goddamn Kane, for Christ's well, the, sakes. The screenwriter for Night of the Hunter also did The African Queen, which people would say is a much superior movie. And it's great. Oh. Bogart's great. But you're you're wrong. Night of the Hunter. Uh, I will say has a bit of a weak ending, but that should not define the insanity of the movie. And you also have to look at censorship of the time. They already got away with a great deal of shocking violence. Like uh, Night of the Hunter is much more violent than Night of the Living Dead. And it's only majorly one scene of violence. But man, and there are some very, I'd say, arousing scenes that are very edgy for its time. You get to really see the the character of Harry Powell and his hatred. He's a misogynist. He hates women. He goes to a uh, burlesque theater and reaches his hand into his pocket and pops his switchblade, you know, like a, an erection. And the knife comes through his coat pocket. There's a scene where um, Shelley Winter's character is told she needs a husband and it cuts directly to a train, a steam train powering through a tunnel. So there are some really cheeky sort of sequences for 1955 to get away with the massive, massive, Censorship, which then it wasn't just the MPAA. There was, I think, the Catholic Board of Film Censorship. There was the Protestant Board. Every religious sect, and then every town got one, 
Like this movie was massively banned. I think it was completely banned in Memphis. I think Texas banned it. Most of the Southern South Bible Belt states got rid of it. I think it's supposed to take place in West Virginia. And I think it was banned there also. Jeez, so I wonder why they would want it banned. Maybe because yeah. a guy pretending to be a preacher is also a murderer. And obviously a rare rapist and misogynist and a hater of women. It's It doesn't really have a female empowerment storyline, but the Lillian Gish character, I think, certainly is a very early heroine of film and strong independent female leads. All right. Uh, I don't know what else I got to say about Night of the Hunter. It's pretty goddamn impressive. How about this? Um, the first time I saw Night of the Hunter was also the first night I watched the abominable Dr. Fibes. So think of, the think wild of that double, double feature. feature. <laughs> I like to think that all of the movies on this list for our rating system are five out of fives because we're saying these are the greatest movies of all time. So I will take you to task on one. I would not consider it a five out of five. Oh, we'll we see. Gotten there yet. We'll see when we get there. All right. Uh, next on my list is a movie I think we've talked about on the show for at least I've probably babbled about it before. And it's Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, which is and this is coming from a guy who who does not like musicals. I am not a fan of musicals for the most part. There are a few that I like here and there. I don't give a shit about Lee Miz. I don't give a shit about that new creepy cats movie coming out. Um, but this film I love, and it is a musical and it is basically the fan of the opera story as well as Dorian Gray and a couple other kind of Faust. Things mixed in. Faust is in there. Um, I would all- argue and this gets a lot of lot of shit, but I would argue and say that the Phantom of the Paradise is exceedingly better than the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh yeah, most definitely. I think so, personally. I think the music's way better too. It's not as singable, like, and it's when you describe this movie as a musical to people, I guess they get the sense of like Hamilton and Les Mis that absolutely everything's going to be singing. And the Rocky Horror Picture Show, almost every scene segues into a musical act. This is more of a wholesome uh, film in the sense of uh, a. Oh. Na- it's about plot. performers. It's a rock it has opera. A, well, yeah, it has it has narrative structure to it, and all the music is laid in. It's not just people breaking into song. It's musicians doing songs for like performance wise in the film. Like, um, and the movie itself is all about music. It's all about the uh, the kind of demonic record industry oh, of the seventies. And Paul Williams wrote all the music, and Paul Williams. I never like he was a weird little troll dude growing up. He was the okay. I, I want to bring this up. I am convinced that Paul Williams is two children. One is standing on the other one's shoulder in a long coat. Those are both very short children. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so they're both toddlers. And over the years, they keep changing the two kids. Mel, oh, well, they got to be dwarves because he's still kicking. He's um, from like Nebraska, too. He is. A, he's from America, and it's every time you watch him, he's in the Planet of the Apes movies. He he can just throw his voice. He's a singer. He's a wonderful performing artist. Wrote some of voice. the biggest hits of the 1970s. He wrote uh, Rainy Day and Mondays for the Carpenters. He wrote uh, he wrote something for Three Dog Night. One of their big chart. Uh, almost everything Three Dog Night did was a chart topper. But he wrote something big for them. He wrote three or four really big. Almost every major Carpenters hit. That you could think of, uh, Paul Williams wrote, did, got really into doing film scores in the 70s. I think he did Smokey and the Bandit, just a, a great deal of uh, oddball, really awesome movies. If you go back and listen to the soundtrack, you'll really appreciate more. But Phantom of the Paradise is the crown jewel to me oh, on his definitely. career. 
because all of his songs in it are pretty fucking terrific. My favorite song only appears at the end of the movie. And um, prior to this week, the last time I watched Phantom of the Paradise was with you. And we both broke out in, in song uh, for the hell of it. The, the last title song of the movie, which is the best, the best song, the whole movie. I got to go with um, Faust. When Wenzel Leach sings it with the piano. That's my favorite song. Oh, wait, piano. when Beef sings it. I really love when Beef sings it. <laughs> Come together with me now. Beef is oh, the fucking best. I can sing it better than any bitch. I love Beef. Oh, Garrett Graham, baby. The amazing um, Garrett Graham. I would say the thing that best describes this movie, besides all these other things like uh, Fan of the Opera and all these other it's a Coke fever dream because it oh, is... Yeah. Very much. It's very much about the '70s disco Coke era and the set design by Jack Fisk of uh, David Lynch fame. Uh, Um, Well, not just David Lynch fame. It's funny. One of your movies is going to become like the Jack Fisk appreciation thing because I really love him. I actually wanted to bring up something that you had pointed out to me while we watched this movie in person. That from the introduction of the first band, the Juicy Fruits, toward the end of the movie, not only do you have, because this is, uh, what, 1974? So you have very early rock and roll, but oddly almost a future depiction of glam rock, glam punk rock, horror punk. Uh, at this point in time, Kiss wasn't really even massively blown up. You know, they weren't uh, a household band, and they even kind of make fun of them, the damned, uh, British punk rock. They even kind of have an Iggy Pop thing going on with the beef character. And a lot of this is is way before these guys really hit the scene. They were out working and doing things, but De Palma as a writer and director, I don't think really ripped things off. I don't think he intentionally ripped Iggy Pop off for beef, but the similarities are definitely there and it's uncanny, but it makes the film again, part of one of the, one of the greatest movies of all time list, just because of its representation of rock and roll and the different styles, because the seventies with film and music was incredibly unique because film was going all over the place. The French, the Germans, the Italians, the Americans, everybody was doing wild stuff. And then guys like Miles Davis were doing, you know, stadium shows as well as kiss and folk rock and uh, arlo guthrie i mean it was just a very odd era of of metal punk everything being created and joining together and really uh, artistic freedom i think was a bit more widespread and easy in the 70s but phantom well, of the paradise includes all of that the 70s is really what started the creator um led film but that really kind of started in the 60s and throughout the 70s and then the 80s it became something else or producers got involved then a bunch of it all became a experimental bunch of independent film became yeah. mainstream Which because what sold. most film was because those are the movies that were getting the most like interest in them um I mean, look at even something as dumb as Star Wars. That was all creator led. No one believed in that, and it turned into be an international phenomenon. Um, Mainly because of Hasbro. Uh, Mattel. Mattel, yeah, Mattel, not Hasbro. Um, but Fan of the Paradise, like, De Palma's style works so well for this film um, with his many split screens, his little camera tricks he likes to do. It doesn't work in a lot of subsequent films that De Palma made, I don't personally think. I think it kind of draws attention to itself. But in this film, it all works really well. Um, mostly due to the subject matter, the the rock and roll nature of the film, the almost music video 
essence that's going on throughout the film. And it does say some things about music, like um, the juicy fruits keep like coming back in different iterations throughout the film. Cause at first they start out to be like a kind of a greaser doo-wop group. And then since the trends are changing and Paul Williams character of Swan is all about just trends and pop music, they turn into a, like a beach boys type band. And then they, and he's obviously a, a, a specter kind of knockoff character as a super producer. Oh yeah. Um, and then eventually they become kind of like a shock rock, uh, Alice Cooper sort of outfit. And it's really kind of the undead, I believe they were called. Uh, yeah, I think so. Beef and the undead. Um, well, beef was they, they do the whole because Swan can't be photographed and that starts playing into the Dorian Gray aspect of the, the picture. And he, they do this press release and they unveil beef. But when he he's created again, it's kind of funny. This is very similar to Rocky Horror Picture Show. He's created by them uh, killing the audience in a Alice Cooper style way and then making him backstage, which is how Rocky is made in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is several years after De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. Not saying that Richard O'Brien ripped anybody off, but, you know, there are, again, a lot of similarities to this and many other things culturally and in rock and roll history. Well, I think a lot of that is just due to the, the 1970s and where the 70s was going. It was just a, a crazy time when everything was just jumping all over the place. A lot of people now talk about how things are moving too fast and changing and we need to go back to what we used to have, like, what are you talking about? The seventies was fucking nuts. The seventies couldn't hold on to a trend for more than two weeks. Fucking disco was like created and died within like a three year period for fuck's sakes. And that's the only thing anybody remembers about the seventies. The and that was the was late seventies, you know, that's yeah. like 77 to 80 or so. And then, you know, new wave kind of came birth from that and punk, the essential punk wave, you know, uh, we'll get into that later, but the essential first wave of punk was dead by like 74, 75. So by the time the eighties came along and again, something we'll get into later and punk rock became sort of mainstream or focusing toward the mainstream, the original guys just didn't care. And you go back to Phantom of the Paradise, that's even represented with Swan. You know, people come to him with their problems about other musicians or other things for him to make them disappear or help them with, and he doesn't care because they're beneath him. What matters is the trends. What matters is selling the new Miley Cyrus record, essentially, because that's what the lead female character is. She's being built to be the next big pop sensation, you know, the next Karen Carpenter of her time, uh, Linda Ronstadt, whatever, you know. Jessica Harper, who got cast uh, in Suspiria because of this movie. Um, What's and funny it is, is two movies. It's kind of Suspiria-esque at the same time. When you say, like, Phantom of the Paradise is kind of similarly um, palleted. It's, got, mean, it's, it's got a similar quite tone. Quite red, but... Yeah, the neon and the red from Suspiria is just Argento's touch. They both are somewhat similar palette-wise, but one thing I think is kind of funny is two movies that are, are about the performing arts starring a dancer. She doesn't fucking dance hardly in either of them. But she, Her, Oh, she dances like shit in Phantom of the Paradise, but she Yeah, it does sing. this little boogie thing, and uh, all the singing is by Jessica Harper. Uh, Finley does all of his singing. Of course, Paul Williams does well, all of he it. Does, his one scene of singing and the rest of it is Paul Williams because he loses his voice when he becomes the Phantom because he gets his head stuck in a record press. Um, so Paul Williams gives him this machine that gives him his voice so he can it sing. turns him into Brian Eno. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, but it's just a terrific film and it's much like Night of the Hunter as well. It sends you into a 
just almost like a fantasy world, a different era that you can experience. I mean, this is like the 70s on a fucking plate. This is everything that was crazy at that time, all in one movie. And a lot of people, I don't think, can sit down and appreciate something like this. They might find it a little old and hacky, but I think it's one of De Palma's best films, most definitely. Um, God, I don't even know if I could rank De Palma's films because he's made so many pieces of shit throughout all that. I mean, he's probably got like maybe, what, three, four really good movies and the rest of it's mostly garbage. And most of it's within this time period from the early 70s to maybe the mid 80s is really. And and unfortunately, it sucks saying this about people. But when Brian De Palma got clean, he really lost a lot of creative touch there. Something about cocaine made him work a lot better. And you can tell he's on coke the entire fucking movie because it's kind of it's it's a little bit of a more slower paced film. Um, it's no John Cassavetti's level of coke, but if you want that, watch Scarface. But I would also say that it's it kind of rockets through its material. There's a lot of material there, and that's why it kind of feels a little. Dra- I don't want to say draggy, but I mean, it just it, you feel the entire one hour and whatever forty five minute experience. But each individual compartment of it is important to the overall narrative of the story and the way it's done. Well, out of everything uh, from beginning to end, it sticks with the story of Faust more so than anything else, which has a lot of integral parts that you have to tell. So I guess that really adjusts the runtime because you've got the Phantom of the Opera and Dorian Gray aspects also, but Faust really from start to end, you've got that deal and the Faustian devil character, because that's the whole point of that story. It's not the devil, but an agent of him as to where Swan is not Lucifer, but an agent of the devil well, who you never see. You only see him in a representation of Swan as himself, your ego, id, whatever. And you've almost created almost a double pun there by calling him an agent of the devil because he's also an agent. Yeah. And that's kind of what we're drawing comparisons here to in the film is that this record producer is – well, record producers are basically evil. As much yeah. as you like my hate film producers, get to record executives. They're fucking cocks. Well, they you will might steal every dime for you possible. There's a good movie about film producers called What the Fuck Just Happened that stars Robert De Niro and somebody that we're going to be talking about in a moment here, Michael Wincott. And it shows I have some sympathy for producers. I don't think they're all soulless leeches that some people get into the industry because they're guys like us and they really love film. And I'm not saying we're not talented, but not everybody can make a motion picture. Not everyone could make a commercial. So you become a producer, a screenwriter, a, a grip. You just do whatever because you want to be a part of the biz. And then eventually you become soulless, which again, it's a good movie. It's just Robert De Niro and a pretty emotional role for, for a guy like him. It's one of his, uh, not re- it's like 20 year old movie at this point, but uh, one of his older recent roles. Is, are, so are we segueing into my well, I mean movie? we can Unless there's anything else we can talk about Fan of the Paradise other than like the music's great It's music that I listen to um, Regularly uh, oh, yeah. I, I don't I, do that for films Like soundtracks very often See, I'm a big soundtrack guy. I collect a lot of film soundtracks and enjoy it. But Phantom of the Paradise, just for rock and roll, disco, pleasure, whatever genre you want to get into. Uh, the, the, like I said, the, the ending song, the hell of it. I, that's on my regular YouTube go to. Whenever I pull that app up on my phone, it suggests, hey, you want to listen to Paul Williams, the hell of it? We know you want to. Oh, yeah, it's and like I 
Here's another bad story about Phantom of the Paradise. I was on a lot of drugs when I first saw it, and that tends to help watching Phantom of the Paradise. It made it that much better. So possibly if you're into those sorts of things, if you want to get on a head full of drugs and watch a good movie, Phantom of the Paradise is where it's at. Yeah, shoot some heroin and enjoy that movie. Right into your dick. From Death by DVD, Drake to you, shoot some heroin into your dick and watch Phantom of the Paradise. You will enjoy it. It's yeah, you're I, up next, baby. I said it this time. So I think this is the latest movie, the most recent quote unquote that we're going to be talking about from 1988. Yeah, 1988 directed by Brian De Palma's former best friend when he did lots of coke. Oliver Stone talking about talk radio based on the book by Stephen Singular and written or based on a play written by and starring Eric Bogosian. Thank you. Said his name right. I always add an R to his name, a forced R. Gorzian. It is the story based on a true story of a Jewish talk show host and uh, he's also an oh, attorney. Shock jock. I mean, sh- that's well, one, kind of important. One thing I really hate, and I'll get a little political here, is everything you read about this play, this, this movie, you read about the true story. It talks about how it was a very liberal man, a very shocking liberal man. And I think politics have nothing to play with it, despite the fact of somebody being mildly leftist. But that itself is just propaganda attempting to play two parties against themselves. He was a liberal talk show host. So to me, that's suggesting if he hadn't been a liberal talk show host, he wouldn't have been shot, which is accepting the fact that a right wing organization called The Order, a neo-Nazi organization murdered a man because of his liberal politics. And that's okay if he hadn't been talking about liberal politics. So putting a title or an ideology on something to me is ridiculous. It was a man that was speaking, uh, his mind, whether it be shocking or freedom on a late night talk show, who was harassed and hunted. And this is also the story of the film by a neo-Nazi organization who eventually shoots and murders him, probably at the greatest point of discovery, which is funny when you usually get to the greatest point of discovery in your life, you meet your demise because you've learned your lesson. And I referenced this earlier. The movie's over. It's all in the can. It always was in the can. But we'll get into weird Taoist stuff on another episode. The movie shows, I don't know, I don't want to say a narcissist, but a man who has fallen so deeply into his own persona. career-driven more than anything. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a man that's become so career-driven that he's lost focus on love and his life and has realized his misery and woe is what people are uh, – relishing it, not what he has to offer the world. And it's just greatly articulate. What makes it fantastic really is uh, Eric Bogosian. It has really nothing to do with Oliver Stone. His style and flair as a director is very prominent in this, and obviously the two butted heads with against each other. But the play, which also had John C. McGinley and I referenced um, earlier Michael Wincott all returning as their exact same characters. I love Michael Wincott. He's a Canadian actor. You probably know him best as Top Dollar from The Crow. He was also in Alien Resurrection, but that's an awful movie. Uh, And the Robert De Niro film, What the Fuck, I had referenced earlier. Great voice. The guy has a crazy, crazy deep voice. He's got kind of a Tom Waits voice. Yeah, it's it's very recognizable. And up until the ni- late 90s, 2000s, had a beautiful long head of hair. Uh, I think he's from Toronto. All these guys were in the original play, which was done. One of my favorite things I've talked about on the old Death by DVD, the live show a lot before, is I absolutely love stories that take place in one room. 
I, I love plays for that matter. And again, this is a, a play and its greatest format. And the greatest way to experience this is as a play. But it's mostly one location. So you have that Night of the Living Dead feeling of being trapped with these characters. And in this short period of time, you get one flashback sequence to uh, get you to know Barry, the lead character. But for the most part, you're in one room and the intensity just keeps going more and more and more. But the things that are said, like I mentioned with Easy Rider and I'll mention with another movie, are so relevant. They And it's just the point that time, it doesn't exist. All of these things that are happening now happened 20 years ago and 10 years ago and five years ago and 40 years ago and 100 years ago and will happen in 140 and 20 and 10 more years. All of these things, time is a flat circle and will continually go on and on and on. Hate never changes. And it's not just hate of of, of racial tension or religious hate. It's self-hatred. It's just in general. It's what powers the world is misery and hate and people leeching off of it. I mean, even to an extent with Death by DVD, we rant, we bicker, we bitch, and people feed off of it and they love it because it's just fun. People want negativity and then you realize that you're draining yourself. And that's what our, our lead character, Barry Champlain, the man you love to love, that should be my new whole catch pitch. Hank, the man you love to love. I like that. We'll do that on the next episode. You learn his misery is yours, too. It's a collective woe, almost like we discussed with Midsummer. Everyone is miserable, and we all feed off of it, and we're all disgusting. <laughs> so positive, Hank. Um, I'm a happy guy. I will say this. This is my four star. I would not quite call it a five star movie. I think it's terrific, but I don't think it hits masterpiece levels particularly. Um, what is Stone's, what's well, it's just it's I think just the story that's being told overall, um, I don't think is as engaging as some of the other films we've talked about. And it, it's still a four fucking star movie. It's still up there. It's still excellent. It's just not masterpiece level. Um I think people that can't relate to this movie are part of the problem, though. Like, if you can't relate to the struggle that Barry's going through, you might be one of the people that are calling in with racial epitaphs and sending him swastika flags in the mail that, you know, there's a, a calling big you a racist. I'm not calling you a racist, but I'm saying <laughs> in general, when you read negative reviews or you see people that just this this movie's just propaganda. No, um, the whole the whole no. point is the speech and, and, and people's freedom of speech does not and carry you being able to shoot someone because you disagree with them. Not that and you would shoot somebody because you disagree with them. I just, uh, I don't think the story in itself is that engaging. That's all I'm saying. It's, um, I think Eric Bogosian does a really good job. Uh, Oliver Stone, it's when he really kind of started his, um, his film style that he kind of had throughout the early 90s with like something like Natural Born Killers and a couple other movies where he had a lot JFK. of black and white footage. Um, he's got that turntable shot on in uh, talk radio where we're just whipping around the studio as Barry spins around. We spin around with him and shit. And a lot of it is mostly due to the fact that it is a play and it doesn't hit those uh, quite filmic levels for me. And again, we're, we're discussing the, like, the difference between like fucking cherry Kool-Aid and grape Kool-Aid. They're both great. It's just I think I like cherry more than I like grape. And it's the same thing with talk radio. I still think it's a great film. I just don't think it hits like those heights that um, it could be. And I, 
I think a lot of that is due to the, the plain nature of it. Um, I would consider the same thing about something like Glengarry Glenn Ross, where it's an awesome narrative. It's an awesome play, but as a film, it's, it's pretty good. It, it's, it, it's an excellent film, but it's not a masterpiece film. Um, but overall, I think it's, it's a great movie in itself. Um, but it's all due to Eric Bogosian. and Oliver Stone is almost comes in second to this film because if you didn't have him as an actor, him as a writer for the original piece, then you would have nothing here. You wouldn't, it wouldn't be quite the same film at all. And I, I kind of miss Eric Bogosian because he used to be kind of a force there for a while and he'd show up in a lot of movies and now he just kind of has disappeared and doesn't really work like he used to. But I think also part of what works in this film is that Eric Bogosian himself, I think really, identifies very much with Barry because I think it's a it's a side of his personality he's presenting some of himself in this role um, well any writer that you know really feels their subject matter pours a lot of themselves into this so I feel like as a playwright he, he definitely delved into it and as a character study he really got into the the mindset of what he needed to do and you use the term shock jock and i feel that's something even the character would be opposed of because the whole point is really practicing freedom of speech and him trying to at least like an early dr phil he's just very a violent version of it he had something to say and offer but no one wanted to hear it i use that term for brevity's sake because most people yeah. would understand that term over uh, he's a guy on the radio who yells at people and he deals with a lot of like, it's not like Howard Stern. It's not jokes. And the, like the morning times, man, this is like the late night guy who is saying they're you know, like getting in death with people, like almost like a radio psychologist. One thing that really gives me the five star rating is the uh, ending performance of Eric Bogosian when he finally breaks Great down team. and loses it. You know, he, he really, as an actor, has hit all the high notes. And this was his first major performance as a film actor. The play had been going on for quite some time. And that you can see the camaraderie with the fellow actors that had been on stage with him. But that performance is just uh, inequivocably broken and sad and makes me choke just watching because I can relate to that. I relate to how worn out and broken he feels and people feeding off your misery. And to me, having just that relation to it pushes it over the top. And then, of course, you get the... Dramatic. I, I almost can't take the ending of this movie. There's a few movies like that for me, but when I know the scene is coming up and I know what's about to happen, I almost can't take it. It makes me so upset and sick to know what's about to happen. But again, uh, life is nothing and we are all nothing. And that's sort of the point of this, that no matter what you do, it's almost it's not predetermined in a sense of some holy cosmic figure, but it will happen time and time again. There will always be hate. There will always be racism, and you will die one way or another. It's just how you go out. And uh, toward the end, not toward the end, the end of the movie has many of the other characters and a lot of the voice actors that were callers talking about Barry and John C. McGinley's character. Stu says, uh, no, it's not John C. McGinley's character. It's Alec Baldwin's character. States, you know, he's kind of like a cast on my arm. I, I, I grew close to him and now he's gone and I, I miss him. And to me, that kind of reminded me of death by DVD that over the years we've 
had very many odds and very many rough episodes, but it's sort of a cast between us now. And uh, if it was cut, it, you would miss it. And then John C. McGinley states that he was just a guy that didn't have a big dick, but liked to flap it around a lot. And that really wraps up the movie. It's not got a big dick, but it needs to be flapped around a lot. It might not be the most powerful story wise, but the tone and the message behind it are important enough that it ranks to me as one of the greatest films of all time and needs to be seen. You need to find talk radio by Oliver Stone. And this is really you mentioned I I don't care for a lot of his 90s stuff. JFK, the Jimmy Hoffa movie. This to me was one of the last great Oliver Stone movies. I don't particularly care for Natural Born Killers either. Uh, It's a great movie. It's just not. I don't know. It's I it's it's a Tarantino thing we won't get into. But to me, this was one of the last great Oliver Stone motion pictures. Well, and I'll justify it again by saying I think any sort of negative response I have to the film and like to deduct any sort of points from it, um, which is such a stupid, arbitrary system anyway. But anyway, it's mostly Oliver Stone's fault. It's no one else involved. Yeah. It's just if anybody he, had been like if Scorsese had directed this, I think it would have probably been a more it just doesn't movie. hit those film levels for me. It hits a story sort of what somewhat level to me. But like if I can enjoy this play just as much as enjoy this movie, then you've done something wrong with your movie. You know, because Coppola it, movies and plays are different. Coppola would have done a really good job with this. Oh, yeah. Like, um, Something like the conversation, which we'll be talking about another <laughs> show coming up. A rumblefish. I, I think his um, visual style could have added something to it. It's just it's a little bit flat. It shot a little bit flat for me. But again, this, we're just all like fucking. We're, I'm picking it apart a little bit. It's still a fucking four for Christ's sakes. I will say before we move on from talk radio, I saw this very early on, and it molded me into going to broadcasting school and really gave me a different thought on perspective and and when I and I implore you as an audience member to look up the true story of talk radio but it really opened my mind to violence just uh, mindless absolute violence and the unnecessary need for it i mean people there i don't know how true this statistic is but i think it's 1.9% of uh, the population is considered right wing. So what that translates to is uh, 19 million people are fucking Nazis. And that's what needs to be said. Not the right wing, not fascist. Let's use the correct word fucking Nazis. And it's alarming. And this is a movie from 1988 and it's 2019. And it's still just as relevant because hate today is even more popular. To quote Marilyn Manson, hate today, no love for tomorrow. Uh, and it's just tragic and it needs to be evaluated. And unfortunately, evaluation will do nothing and change, I don't think, is going to happen. But you can make a difference by at least acknowledging uh, just hate and there's the vile nature of hate. You can make a difference by not being that type of person, by not feeding off others' misery, by not being a fucking piece of shit. You can make a difference in the bubble of your reality, and maybe that's something that should be taken from talk radio, if anything. Talk radio. It's a great movie. It's pretty good. <laughs> pretty, pretty, it's excellent. Pretty, just not a masterpiece. Pretty good. Uh, would you still say it's one of the greatest movies of all time, though? 
Yeah, I would put it on this list. I mean, but okay, again, yeah. this list is it's us together. It doesn't yeah. matter what I think is the greatest thing of all time. Well, um, I, I still feel that this is like, you know, our definitive list. So we uh, we don't have to agree, but I feel it would be more fluent if we agreed they all at least they deserve a spot. Oh, yeah. It deserves this, a, oh, if we pick something or you pick something, I pick something that we do, I, you, one of us doesn't feel should be on the list. We have to do a, a blood sport over it then, a, a debate over why it should be on the list. Yeah, I mean, like, this is not – if you get into threes and twos and stuff like that, then we have a debate on our hands. But well, like, this let's is, tell the it's story. It's just not perfect. I was talking to a fan. I hate that term, a fan. It just it sounds degrading to me. I was talking to a listener, somebody that likes Death by DVD, and I had told them what this new episode was going to be about, gave them a little sneaky peeky, and they came in disappointment because we attempted to do this many years ago, and it was uh, more of a goofy episode. I think I picked Weekend at Bernie's, and you, funnily enough, picked a movie that will be on this list shortly. Uh, and Did that I was pick the- this once before for a greatest of all time thing? Uh, one of these, yes, is on our original greatest of all time, <laughs> and it, it definitely deserves to be. I'll, I'll make note of it when you come up onto it. But they, this this person suggested, well, you're not going to do like like ghoulies. No, we're we're really taking a stab at giving you a legitimate list of the greatest movies of all time in segments. There will of six. be horror on it at some yeah. point. It's just, I mean, right now we're just not there yet. Well, Night of the Hunter is the most horror-ish on this list, and then we'll have a kind of sci-fi movie coming up. But regardless, uh, it's kind of a really depressing movie. Well, the point is to, I don't know, extend your film lexicon, let your library grow a little bit. And of course, we'll get into horror, and that's the main thing about this show. But just trying to talk, we're we're rapping. We're having fun. <laughs> like the Sugar Hill Gang, I guess. Yeah, man, it's it's a hip hop paradise. So, talk radio, and it is on to you, my man. Well, if talk radio is excellent to me, but not a masterpiece, let's talk about a masterpiece. And that masterpiece is Terrence Malick's Badlands, which and is one of the greatest movies of all time. This is the movie you did on the greatest last time show. <laughs> Can't I, believe I. I'm, I'm that coherent with my choices. Well, arguably, like not, I would say even on the top ten list, Badlands is one of the finest movies ever made. And when you picked it and it, it came up on this list for the greatest hits of death by DVD, I was a little pissed. Like, damn, I, I should have picked that. I'm going to ramble about this movie just because there's just I, I don't know. There's not enough to uh, there's more to say about this than I could even fill time with that. Badlands, uh, I'll let you go because I'll take up all the time well like badlands what is most interesting about and i'll get in a little bit of a plot synopsis in a second um it's not a grand expanding story it's not it's not some epic it's a very quiet small film just done to perfection just done to absolute perfection and terrence malick is a force of nature when it comes to filmmaking he might have dropped off for a lot of people Um, mind you this is his first movie and this is his yeah. directorial debut and it's a masterpiece yeah <laughs> so that uh, come up with that like Evil came out Dead of the was box sam huh? raimi's first movie which is a masterpiece in itself but come on it's no badlands um and the general plot is it's based on just a very stark weather vaguely based on charlie stark weather murders um about a guy who this james Dean looking dude who came 
were running into this town and got a child bride and they went on a murder spree. It's basically like the, your, a lot of your kind of Romeo and Juliet serial killer type. Bruce Springsteen also recorded an album about it. Nebraska. Yeah, that, that you see in um, a lot of like more modern serial killer things. Of It's a couple. They're killing together. It's based all on Charlie Starkweather. Well, what and, makes things different is the character. And, and just bringing up Charlie Starkweather, he was amazingly likable. He wasn't a sociopath. And uh, generally, serial killers have the tendency of being sociopaths. And he wasn't highly educated, but he just came from a shitty home. And his murder spree lasted nine days in real or ten days in real life with nine murders, all of them. Pretty random and pretty bloodthirsty, but uh, he was even well-received and loved by the police. The character Kit in the movie played by Marty not, Sheen. And not Emilio Estevez, but the amazing Martin Sheen. He is so likable and so lovable, you almost relate to this villain. So unlike uh, Harry Powell, uh, Robert Mitchum in Night of the Hunter, you have a character that you relate to despite just being atrocious. like the guy. Yeah, uh, there's a wonderful, and this usually, I feel if you do a narration in a movie, it's because you can't tell a story. Terrence Malick is a, a very favors doing narrations, but the way he does it, he, no one else has quite been able to do it. Uh, Tony Scott tried to and ripped it off heavily from well, Batman. It ends up being almost like poetry. Well, yeah, the like, way it, like his scripts are. Tony Scott tried to do it with True Romance with the uh, Alabama Whirly character, which is just a, a ripoff of Badlands down to the soundtrack. But it works from a perspective of this girl that gives you her innocence and allows you to see a lack of development of romance between these two characters that are supposed to love each other. And it's not that it's 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 almost, again, play like with its narration. And it's very free. It's not describing what's going on in the movie or carrying how things are going. But you get a monologue. I mean, it's what this character, like yeah. her experience and like oh, kind of what's going through her head, but not in like a clinical sort of sense. It's more like a like a poem because like Sissy Spacek um, in the film is playing a 15 year old. And this is kind of what 15 year olds think of love. And well, she's she even, like in her narration shitless in the film, but well, she doesn't even know it. She thinks she loves him. There's an extent in her narration where she says uh, Kit was the most trigger happy person I ever met, but he was just so kind and never got mean to me. So you get to understand even the development of his character on screen and off screen between what she has to say. And it just works uh, on such a different level outside of a narration. It's almost like the book Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, which starts with a narration and a narrator that begins to narrate a story that he's already narrating. So in Inside of this, you're in four walls of a film, and Sissy Spacek isn't delivering or driving the plot. Her character Holly's just expressing her mind, and somehow Malik just overwhelmingly with the soundtrack and the narration slams everything together to such an articulate point that you can't help but feel everyone's collective emotion. You feel hers, you feel Kit's, and then once you see characters in woe like Cato, uh, you even she even says. Kit didn't even understand why he shot and hurt Cato. That you understand everyone, and it's very magical and bizarre to see that happen in a, in a film. It's just you don't usually relate to people. Movies like this and uh, what's that Cassavetes movie with Dustin Hoffman? Shit. Uh, you're putting me on the spot, dude. My Cassavetes is not very strong. Oh, well, it's very similar. Straw Dogs. It's got that very similar. It's not Cassavetes. It's not John Cassavetes? No, that is. 
is um, Sam Peckinpah. Sam Peckinpah. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, Peckinpah. I was. They both loved cocaine. I was on a guys that loved cocaine thing. <laughs> Uh, but it's got that very gritty feel to it. It's got a very anxiety and intense uh, driving force. But there's a pleasantry to Badlands when they're living out in the forest together. You almost just want the movie to end there because it's happy. They they're just living in a forest coconut paradise. And it's it's hard to kind of stress that for as much of a psycho as Martin Sheen is in this film, you really do like him. You want him to get away with these murders. You want them to like live. You believe in this romance, this horrible born in hell romance that's going on. You want it to continue. Well, what you got with Martin Sheen is a character you've got inside of all of us because everyone wants their 15 minutes of fame and location plays a big part of this movie. The Badlands of North Dakota, Texas, absolute nothingness. Imagine growing up and living your whole life in absolute nothingness, knowing you're going to eventually be nothing. You would do anything possible to be something. And once Kit starts killing, he realizes, well, when they catch me, at least I'm going to be on TV and they're going to love me and I'm going to be noticed when he's finally caught, instead of some big gun battle with the police, he stops and he builds a monument to where they caught him to remember it. That's how little he cared. Well, like what you brought up is pretty interesting because what Terrence Malick does excel at in all ways is his, his photography of his film and the way he shoots this movie with. Well, hey, that's Jack Fisk, man. Like, I think. Well, I'm- Terrence I'm, Malick without Jack Fisk would not be as good. I'm more talking about well, because well, that's production design, and I'm talking about the location shooting in this because it, you you see how isolated the way it's shot. All these characters are they're standing in these empty fields. Like if you've ever been to like North Texas, there is nothing. You can see the curvature of the earth, and Terrence Malick captured that. How he made all of his characters so small in the film at, well, at that's times, even in the broad movie. vistas, where they like you're, he's basically saying like, look how tiny you are in this great big world, and how much you really don't matter, and how much Martin Sheen's trying to control that in himself, and honestly, kind of become some sort of superstar, and knowing it no way, shape, or form how to become one. Um, he's just he's obsessed with his own ego and. Then Malik cuts to these like these broad, empty vistas to show really how small he is. Well, in that essence, too, there's a scene where they're driving through the Badlands and during the narration with the character Holly by Sissy Spacek, she says uh, how ugly it is and there was nothing to look at. And Kit tells her to at least enjoy the scenery. So she did. And they cut to the car very almost like Night of the Hunter drawing across the canvas line of the sky, and there's just nothing vastly in every single direction. And that nothingness is what's inside Kit. It's what's inside all of us, that there's a nothing just hoping to be something. And once you've latched onto it, whether it's positive or negative, you beat the horse until it's dead. And in Kit's case, he knows what he's doing is wrong. I mean, there's a scene where... There, he's a garbage man at the beginning of the movie, and funnily enough, the rest of the movie is him oddly collecting garbage everywhere he goes, just hoping it will be something that lasts. And he ends up shacking up with his garbage delivery friend, trying to hide out, and shoots him, just worried that he's going to run. Two people show up that were going to purchase a car, and he locks them into a, a shed and just blindly shoots, hoping that he's hit them out of complete fear with no necessity to kill them. It's just become part of his nature at this point. You encounter me, you have to die. But yet he's polite. Uh, when he encounters Holly's father at toward the beginning, the, the 
going into the second part of the movie Old played by Warren the Oates. yeah played by the amazing talking about guys that love cocaine Warren Oates cocaine and cigarettes speaking of which during the scene where Martin Sheen finally deals with Warren Oates he even says to him so politely I've got a gun sir he's so nice he has empathy, and when he shoots people, he doesn't. He feels bad, but at the same time, he doesn't. He understands what he's done. He'll well, he sit with them. Feels like he's an outlaw, like a classic cowboy, like bad see. I don't. Outlaw. I don't even think that he thinks of himself as the man in black. He just thinks. Oh that he, no, no, no! no. I don't, I'm not saying that far. I'm just talking about like, no, I'm an outlaw, sir, and this is just what outlaws do. I don't even th- like. I don't think he's even questioning his nature almost it's just like this it's almost like what he what he's always wanted to be is that man black he's never there he's never gotten there at all but i mean i think that's who he thinks he is deep down inside well it's not even so much this the black cowboy black hat character it's james dean that even the true charles starkweather relished in the fact he had a similar look to james dean and they bring that up very heavily in the movie and it even shows how happy kid is when it's brought up that somebody references him as james dean he just wanted to be a rebel without a cause why'd you kill all those people well they got in the way you've got a really great scene and this is one of my favorites in the entire movie after he's been caught They're at this airport waiting for transport and all these journalists are surrounding and flocking and he's throwing his cigarette lighter and his comb and he's just nonchalantly talking about it. And the police love him. They're wishing him good luck. They get on this plane. It's the very end of the movie and they're going to fly off. And there's just this one shot of this mailman and he's got this giant bag filled with shit. The mailman's just walking across the runway. And I I absolutely love it because to me, what you're you've. You've got a guy that doesn't know what's in that bag. He doesn't know that it's all these letters of adoration and love for this this cold-blooded murderer. And in real life, Charles Starkweather sexually assaulted one of his victims. But in the film, Kit isn't quite as vicious and actually seems to be very sexually respective to Holly, despite there being an age gap. And I'll get into that in a second. But this character just walks across the runway, and that's his job. That's his place on this earth. And that guy at that point in time had no clue that he was in the presence of this horrific killer, which they state in the movie. There was a world or a nationwide manhunt. They were worried about him going into Los Angeles. They had U.S. Marshals on the case. And real life, Starkweather was 19 and the girl, I think, was 12. In the film, um, Terrence Malick really, really wanted uh, Martin Sheen to play the role and had written it for a 20-year-old. Martin Sheen was, I believe, 32 and had, you know, Charlie and Emilio was married, read the script, thought it was the greatest thing he'd ever read, but it turned it down and said, I'm way too old. And Malik said, you know what? I'll, I'll rewrite it. You, you need to be this character. You can do this. You need to do this. And thankfully, it was an instance that an actor actually took some note and listened to what was going on, because Martin Sheen is one of the biggest pieces of this movie, the way he just is his voice, his character, his actions, his mannerisms. He's just delightful. And uh, there's there's this, the chemistry between him and Sissy Spacek is incredibly awkward, which is necessary and what was needed between the two. They don't have a romance and her narration explaining her childlike adoration reminds you throughout the movie and drives that she is a child. She's a little innocent girl. And that's why she's not stopping him from murdering these people. She doesn't really know it's that wrong yet i mean i i think more than anything she's just at that age where she's lost and almost 
still listening to any adult who talks to her. Like uh, a fucking grown man comes along and says, I'm in love with you and we're going to run off together. Okay. I mean, you're an adult. I mean, he shoots her father. Yeah, and she's just kind of like, uh, I, I don't know how to feel about this. And that's her performance throughout the entire film. She just looks completely unsure of who she is as a person, totally. I mean, she ends up marrying the um, the defense attorney's son, I think, her defense attorney's son. Yeah. So she goes the exact opposite direction with her next lover. Um, and I think more than anything, what you hit upon is Martin Sheen's charisma throughout the film, because if he didn't have that charisma, that draw, then you wouldn't have a fucking movie. And Martin Sheen pulls it off in spades in this movie to where he's just he's interesting to watch on the screen. His performance um, carries you through because Sissy Spacek really doesn't even have that much dialogue throughout the film. It's mostly just Martin Sheen. So if he can't pull this off, which amounts to almost a two hander, then. You, you ain't got anything. And Martin Sheen just is fucking brilliant in the movie. He's the reason to watch it more than anything. That and Terrence Malick's direction overall. I mean, a lot of people can make jokes about Terrence Malick and like uh, the Tree of Life and Thin Red Line and all of his, his later movies that, frankly, I just don't think you understand. And yeah, they're a little full of themselves. They're a little heady, but... That's what Terrence Malick as a director is. He's not a narrative filmmaker. He doesn't have to be a narrative filmmaker. He's more of a philosophic filmmaker and that he's more interested in just kind of the nature of life and not particularly about making a blockbuster film with a really great plot. That's he's completely uninterested in that. I mean, look at his war movie for Christ's sakes. It's mostly about the philosophy of war and uh, the men, how they react to the situations around them. If you look at anything about world war two, everybody was a fucking warrior and they did their job proficiently and you can never question them or talk shit about them at all. And something like the, the thin red line where it's, like, no, these were these are flawed individuals. These are individuals who were scared. These are individuals that consider their placement in this war. Let's get into that as opposed to just rah rah America. And I, I wish Terrence Malick would make more films. Hell, I wish Terrence Malick would make a Marvel movie. I think that'd be interesting as shit. I want Jim Jarmusch to make a Marvel movie and not zombie movies. Well, Jim Jarmusch just made a weird comedy zombie movie. I don't know what the fuck that guy was doing. One of the really intriguing things with the character of Kit is, uh, I hate using the term, but him being an anti-hero. Obviously, he's a villain and should be regarded as such, but his... But ultimately, he is an anti-hero. Yeah, you almost have a sadness when you realize that he gets executed at the end of the movie, and it sort of reminds... It's made of the Kirk Douglas movie Man in the Hole that the character is just unredeemable almost. It's somebody that is just absolutely completely negative, but you're fixated on them and you are driven on it. And that's something really intriguing that not always is your hero a, a great person, but you have to remember that you're trying to look at something through a different perspective or possibly learn or acknowledge something different. And with Badlands, I think you are really looking at desolation, not just the Badlands is a representation. The Badlands of the Nebraska, North Dakota is a representation of the emptiness inside of all of us and the extremities that people are willing to take to become something or anything or to feel some people are incapable of feeling. And I'm not saying that Kit couldn't, but he's a man that possibly felt so much. He was just pushed to a point of the world's against me. And it's, 
it's not that the world's against you. It's just that it's all nothing in the first place. And trying to grab those 15 minutes to some people is all they'll ever have. Well, I think like you, ha- you have to paint him no matter how you feel about the character, no matter how Terrence Malick felt about the character, you have to paint him as an anti-hero so you can empathize with him. And he, you want to like him. I mean, that's kind of the whole purpose of the film. And same thing with what Oliver Stone tried to accomplish with Natural Born Killers is he wanted to make them anti-heroes. And a lot of people said, you're glorifying this. It's like, no, what you don't understand is the charisma that people like this exude is why we are obsessed with people like this. And that's why we're obsessed with Kit and Badlands is because they are very charismatic people. They can smile at you and make you feel like they're doing the, the right thing when in actuality they just have just evil intentions at all times. And it's not even that Kit's intentions are completely evil. It's more, it's not even nihilistic. He doesn't know what's going on, and that's almost purity, just acknowledging that there is no control, no one's in control, and the things that are going to happen are going to happen. That's just how it is. It's very straightforward with this is life. This is this. Grow up. People die. And it might not be, I mean, let's even look at Ted Bundy, which this movie predates even to somebody like him. The uh, the judge presiding over his case said this man that has admitted and has been charged with, what, 200 some rapes and violent deaths of women and cannibalism and necrophilia. The guy says it's such a waste. You would have been a great attorney, which is completely almost disregarding the vile acts that the man committed. And this movie shows that with the law enforcement. They disliked him because he was a good old Southern boy. Look at him. He looks like James Dean. He was so nice to all of us, but he raped and killed all those people. Blah, 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 blah. It's just almost showing again propaganda like talk radio. Uh, the good, the bad, like labeling something as liberal or conservative. He was a charming killer. So does that make it any better? He was a killer. A killer is a killer and killing is wrong. Uh, it, It doesn't matter what your moral spectrum is. If you're Christian or an atheist or a Satanist or a Jew, killing another human being is wrong and abhorrent. That's just how it is. But you can relate still on a, another level, and that's filmmaking. That's the genius behind Terrence Malick and what makes this specifically such a great movie. And uh, it's just, to me, timeless. I think it is uh, just not gushing and sucking its dick, but it's just one of the most uh, artistically shot movies of the last 50 years. It's just not going to get better than this. And the, literally, this movie is why Tarantino has a career. Even down to the soundtrack. I mean, it's just how Tarantino saw something like Badlands and made a career out of it. And not just him. Many people have Terrence Malick style, like the word people, people say things Lynchian or Cronenbergian. It, it, there is Malickian, I guess. It's just shitty to say. But Terrence Malick style is everyone's stolen it. Everyone's used it. He well, is definitive. He's never getting any credit for it. He's just one of those filmmakers that has flown under the radar for as many years as he's been like in and out of the business. He's someone that's not going. He will be remembered by film dorks like us, like William Freakin. People, William Freakin. Um, I mean, we know what William Freakin's obituary is going to say. Fucking Exorcist director dies. That's the first thing. Not they're not going to mention to live and die in L.A. Well, they're yeah, they're not going to mention the French Connection. But they'll bring that one up in the article. But it'll all be about the Exorcist. 
It was recently the anniversary of uh, Ramiro and Toby Hooper's deaths, and that's every article. Texas Chainsaw Massacre director, Night of the Living Dead director, and I'm not saying, you know, you got to go out there and be the niche guy to say the director of Martin Knight Riders, but regardless, you could even just shorten it to artist, film director, creator, human being. Uh, well, uh, mostly with Romero, it was not even Night of the Living Dead. It was Father of Zombies. Yeah, like broken down into like a a monster he created, not even a specific film per se, as much as he created the zombie genre, basically. So uh, there you go. That's that's him. And this guy did the uh, the Chainsaw Massacre. Well, that's, that's just boiled down to. It's all individuality, and that's something that Badlands really seeps into is human individuality and the necessity to be something. But sometimes you end up becoming something, and that's all that defines you. Like Kit, he makes the monument when he's caught out of Roxo. This is where you caught me. This is it. He gives his lighter and his pen away because they're now rare tokens of who this individual was that he has now been defined by his actions. And as he's to where... never been happier. At that. Yeah. But let's look at the different spectrum of people like Ramiro who uh, were cursed and up to their last moments just wish somebody would have appreciated them for something else. That sometimes what you define yourself in time, which I swear it's predetermined, but not in some celestial sense. It's just things are going to happen and there's you don't have control over it. Things will happen. And that's just how it is. Well said. Uh, yeah, Badlands, we've gotten weirdly philosophical into is probably I don't know if Hank agrees with me, but it's probably the number one on the list so far. Uh, I was uh, thinking about this before the show started that Badlands is the best movie on the list. Yeah, I'd say, and like we can, the rest of them are all going to be debatable of where they fit on a list, which is completely irrelevant and important. The important thing is you got to see Badlands. Track it down. Yeah, and one, before we get off Badlands, one thing that uh, is just amazing with the movie is set design, which uh, the art director is Jack Fisk, who worked with, has worked with Terrence Malick throughout most of his career, and is married to Sissy Spacek. This is where they actually met and fell in love, and a sweet story behind this is some of the intricacy behind the set is just insane and is really uh, an art artist coming forward. Sissy Spacek's room is... Just delightfully childlike, and he would place trinkets and things he thought she would like inside her dresser drawers, which she would later incorporate into scenes, and that's as they, in true life, were falling in love with one another. There's this awesome scene where uh, her father's been shot, and she's coming up the stairs in this very little girl, puffy green dress, and for the first time in the movie, smoking a cigarette, sort of represent, represent, showing a representation of the loss of childhood. And all of this was just kind of stuff that Jack Fisk set into the movie, the character Cato that I mentioned that you encounter at the beginning and then toward the end of the second part of the movie and you see his house. It's just filled with this random junk that he was a trash collector in the movie. Uh, jars filled with black widows that he feeds, all these random parts on the wall. And Jack had read in a local obituary that this guy had died and was uh, just an eclectic fella and had all this stuff. He called the family. They said, for 100 bucks, you can have all this. So all of this stuff, this, this guy's black widows, this guy had just died. He took it all and incorporated it into that set, which was way out in the middle of Colorado. They found this farm to film on in the middle of Colorado. They built the uh, – he hand-dug and built the, the little dig-out shed where the two teenagers are killed and the big trailer where Kato's bodies put out. All of that was Jack Fisk, and the guy's attention to detail really is something that made this movie just uh, – it's admirable as even somebody – I've never made a film, but – 
it's just admirable as an artist standpoint, the amount of detail and attention and finishing and waxing that was put into this movie. The scene where the house is burned down, they had laid down, I think, um, some sort of glue. And uh, everybody actually almost died this day filming because they had shut the house off and had laid down this glue so it would catch fire and burn very intricately over the piano and throughout the house. And a PA had, you know, just we got the glue down, we're ready, lit a match, and that shit went up. Thankfully, everybody got out. Uh, I believe Martin Sheen had his entire family, Emilio, everybody on set, and had lost his, he had just a really bad feeling and lost his temper with his wife and made her completely leave and uh, was just feeling really, really bad about it. And it actually said in my performance, you can see how sour I was, and then the set blew up. So kind of a neat Weird fact, but uh, Jack Fisk, what hell of a guy. Just looking into his career is worth a man in the planet. Yeah, check out Jack, Jack Fisk's career, IMDb that, and watch some of him. Uh, if, if you just appreciate art, watch some of his set design um, and art direct work, especially with Terrence Malick. Terrific guy. Really, really great guy. Oh, no, it's my turn to keep talking, isn't it? It is your turn to keep talking. Okay, so I thought this was going to be the movie that you said wasn't a full five-star oh, rating. Fuck no. This is, uh, <laughs> this I would say is the second greatest movie on the list. Uh, one of the greatest movies of all time. I'll punch you in the face for any disagreement. Written by Alex Cox, directed by Alex Cox. His first motion picture, Repo Man from 1984, starring uh, so many awesome people. The amazing Tracy Walter is the first person I want to give credit to. Has the greatest line of dialogue in the entire movie. John Wayne was a fag. Uh, my hero, the man I was named after, Harry Dean Stanton, and Emilio, Emilio Estevez, whole bunch of great other people. Um, God, you've got uh, the who got else? Xander from the Circle Jerks. Yeah, Xander uh, Schloss, who actually wasn't in the Circle Jerks at this time. When, not at that point now. Yeah, when he actually met the Circle Jerks who are in this movie, they were really rude to him and they uh, kind of made fun of him. Xander Schloss actually replaced Chris Penn, who was going to be in the movie and. Ended up leaving because he didn't want to wear a hat or, or something. I don't know. It's Chris Penn. He was probably doing, again, talking about people that love cocaine on this episode. Chris Penn <laughs> sure loved coke. So what's this movie about? What is uh, Repo Man about? Well, I like to say <laughs> I like to say that it's uh, and this isn't really so much me. I think this is uh, I think Xander Schloss says this himself on the commentary track. This is a sci fi movie made during the Reagan era. And when you look at it from that angle uh, with consumerism, Star Wars, literally Ronald Reagan wanting to start the Star Wars force, uh, paranoia, fear of the Russians, and of course the punk rock scene burgeoning in LA, which at this point in time would be almost the third wave of punk in American history. It's just, I don't know, it's very hard to describe. You could also say that it's about a guy whose life sucks and he just wants to get laid and he ends up realizing freedom and again going into our last subject his identity and his self-exploration it's a story about growth it's a story about a man meeting a father figure and becoming a man there's a thousand different ways you can look at repo man but really it's one of the greatest punk movies ever made there's a lot of other 80s punk rock movies and why i feel repo man takes the cake is even like Penelope's Fierce at the same time as doing Suburbia, and it's a great movie. I love Suburbia, but it's just missing something. And you have these over 
It's, it's uh, missing over... a glowing Malibu is what it's missing. Well, you get these over-polished representations of punks and metalheads. There's a punk or a metalhead character, and nothing's quite right. They're just these violent, idiot, fill, filler characters. And in Repo Man, Alex Cox was a part of the L.A. punk scene. And I mentioned it's third wave, and what I mean by that is you got to go back to the late 60s, Iggy Pop, MC5, uh, Ramones going in the 70s first wave Then the British shit happens You got the Sex Pistols, the Clash, all those guys And then you come back to America Hardcore is starting, so you got the LA scene Black Flag, the Circle Jerks uh, Fear, which All the actual characters named after Beer, which what is a uh, Bud, Miller, Light, I don't remember The last one, but all the four major Repo men in the movie are all based on uh, The band members Fear Bud obviously being Lee Ving Which all of these guys, this was going to be a stupid film and all of these guys were going to be in it because Alex Cox was connected to the LA punk scene and knew a lot of these underground guys and wanted to not so much bring them forward but talking about punk rock it's a little bit different than metal or getting into rap or getting into a scene that punk rock is essentially a way of life and the way you lived was through the music and Alex Cox found a way to translate that uniquely into film with punk's anti-consumer and anti-man message with freedom and a lot of laughter it's a very funny movie but the humor is I don't want to say it's black humor, but it is on edge. It's this is one of the most quotable movies as well as Slapshot out there. Uh, again, John Wayne is a fag is one of my favorite quotes of life of a repo. Man's always dangerous. You can go all day with this one. I what prefer, about our relationship? Um, Fuck that. <laughs> That's a good one, actually. Um, I always like let's get sushi and not pay. That's and also um, that's my favorite quote in the movie. I was going to end the show with that. I still might. <laughs> and the, the line that precedes that, which is, come on, let's do crimes. You're just a suburban white punk, just like me. Yeah, but it but still hurts. I, th- <laughs> I think one of the things <laughs> that um, you brought up earlier is kind of the key of why Repo Man has lasted so long, because with Penelope Spheres' film Suburbia, she got very dramatic with the punk rock scene and like the reality of that. And what she is missing a lot of in that film is how funny the punk rock scene is and was. And this movie like indicates all of those things. And that's why it's so punk rock. Um, punk rock is about like- freedom, man. It's not just rebellion or fuck the man or have a mohawk. It's about absolute freedom. And one of the big issues with the scene nowadays is people misconstrued this freedom for this right wing bullshit that Donald Trump spews about consumerism. We talk about the right wing and the order and how there are Nazis and 19% of the, or 1.9% of the population is right wing. Let's talk about the fucking president. Uh, People like that try to make censorship. We're against that. We're all for freedom of speech. And these are the same people that are going and shooting people because they are running them down on the street. Here's something recent that uh, are, are, I'm for freedom of speech when it's my freedom of speech. Yeah. Your freedom of speech doesn't matter to me. Well, they're trying to use that as this excuse. We're punk rock, we're metal. And a movie like Repo Man is really the definitive argument against that. And it shows that with so much humor, poking fun at not just the current system or the new guard, but the old guard. And then it pokes fun at punk rock itself and people that take it so fucking seriously as to where the lead character, Otto, which I think is funny because Otto is 
the same as forward and backward. And if you look at the progression of the character, he's very empty. He's forward and backward through the entire movie. Even when action happens, he just manages to watch it and take it in and grow. But he never quite seems to change. And it's very interesting. Estevez did a really cool job as the character, even though he has a faux hawk. He could have shaved the sides and had a fucking real mohawk, but. Well, like, um, as I was trying to say earlier a little bit, it's like with just, uh, Penelope Spheres' film, when she took everything so seriously, it's almost like, I mean, and she was also famous at the time for her documentary footage of the punk rock scene. And she treats the, the Western civilization almost like a documentary. And Repo Man is a movie about somewhat the punk scene from a punk scene's perspective, not from an outsider's perspective. This is from a perspective of like even shit down to the generic food that they um, use. Yeah, em- the Emilio film. comes home and I-, I love the scene because his parents are actually becoming like pod people and it's supposed to be a sci-fi movie and his mom's lighting a joint and his dad's just vegging out watching TV and he cracks open a can of food. That's what the label says, food. When they stop to get beer, it just says drink on the label. And it's consumerism. It's finally not the Criterion edition of this movie. The disc just says disc. That's the point. That's buy, sell, consume, obey. Well, and that's kind of how the punk rock scene, especially back then, viewed things. Like, they viewed all these consumer products as just... Do it yourself, baby. And... um, just like the humor that's in it and the way that it, it's just you look at the world. It's it's not this hmm, it's not this kind of violent scene of just like irresponsible youth. There actually is a bit of a message. And it's weird to say that Repo Man has a bit of a message in it. But it well, does. that's what More I mean so the by the sub- than, um, su- suburbia. Well, that's what I mean by the general uh, display of punk rocks in 80s film. In suburbia, you still have this violent group of punk rockers, Return of the Living Dead. They're all trouble. It's all about the negative shit in the punk rock scene. Oh, what yeah. Class of 1984, they just went through a costuming department and threw some studs and spikes and swastikas on people. I mean, even down to Mad Max 2, they just wanted to rip off the punk rock look because it looked dangerous for the marooders. And again, as I was raving, punk rock was it was freedom. That was the entire point of it. And punks hate hearing this. And I'll tell you, as an old punk going back to Easy Rider, and this is where that comparison comes forward with the soundtracks, by the way. All an old punk is is just a hippie that's that's grown up. That's what punk rock is, and people hate hearing it. But you you take hippies and you think of this peace and love, flower power bullshit. And Jim Morrison whipping his dick out and shooting heroin was that was actually the hippie movement. The Grateful Dead, Pigpen, guys like that. These leather bound, long haired freaks. Iggy Pop was one of them. They eventually turned into something else. Most of these guys didn't make it out of the '60s. If they had. Would the doors have gone punk? Definitely. Why? Because when Jim Morrison died, they called Iggy Pop to fucking replace him. That was the direction things were going with. The New York Dolls came out of New York City. The Ramones came out with a completely harsh sound. Iggy Pop and the Stooges did raw power, which every American hardcore band from Bad Brains to Black Flag will sit down and tell you Iggy Pop's raw power is what changed things. And uh, Iggy Pop did the the theme to this movie which is really great if you listen to the lyrics and you listen to the theme it he read the fucking script it it really is is relevant and has things to do with it and there's an interview with Iggy Pop about this movie 
that really fascinates me as as an old guard punker. By the time the 80s had come forward, he was, you know, in, in woe, really into drugs, had had a hard time, was kind of on the uh, the strings of his career. They gave him this job and gave him carte blanche to do whatever he wanted to with the song, which is really rare with a director. But Alex Cox is, was, is a punk and wanted to deal with somebody that kind of started this entire scene. And Iggy read the script and just couldn't relate that by the time these hardcore guys had come out and had punk had transformed it and almost gathered a uniform and a following. He just was washed out. He didn't know what punks were doing. And this was Iggy's exposure to like our uh, circle jerks. He heard circle jerks for the first time working on this movie and was like, wow, we started this. This is all right. This, this is really cool. So having somebody like that even step in and like Harry Dean Stanton, an old guard guy that you could argue and say, Harry Dean Stanton was pretty fucking punk. Uh, he was pretty different and he had a lot of different things to say. And his character, Bud, obviously has a lot of different things to say in the movie about life in general. And outside of a sci fi story, outside of a punk rock story, you've got characters that change. You've got people that from the first scene and frame that they're introduced to the last take what's happening and like you as a human take these things and change because of it and become different entities uh one of the last lines of dialogue by harry dean stant was a emilio zapata quote i'd rather die on my feet than on my knees and it's just these neat philosophical nuggets that not only represent punk rock but should represent the idea of freedom freedom of speech freedom of creation or the freedom to say Fuck my relationship. I'm going to get in this glowing Malibu time machine uh, with Tracy fucking Walter and I'm out. And that's life. Well, I think, I mean, you've gotten off into some very political things and I'm more going to just talk about the movie in itself. Um, it represents the 80s really well. And as like arch and as weird as things get and as sci-fi as things get, that really kind of was the 80s. You can, like, okay, there were no glowing Malibus with aliens in the back. But it feels so much like the 80s. It feels like all the, the culture around, the very empty culture that was going on around that era. Vapid. And everything was completely vapid. And to where the punk rock scene was at the time. Well, like, let's look at stranger almost things. Like the only woke people there that actually were of all the things like the punk rock culture completely made Ronald Reagan, their number one enemy. And uh, like calling him a fascist, uh, making all different types of uh, merchandise or focus around Reagan and dead Reagan and all that shit. And very tuned in. Cause even like Reagan youth, even people who were hardcore Democrats at the time, oh, I kind of like Reagan. Reagan was a fucking fascist. And like the only people who really say anything about it were the, was the fucking punk rock scene, for Christ's sakes. A bunch of goddamn kids who can see through your goddamn smoke screen. And we've got kind of a similar thing. I knew I, I said I wasn't going to get kind of political, but that's exactly where I went. And where things well, are going now, it's very though. similar. I mean, you bring up a great point with that and with Stranger Things. Season three, they did a new Coke joke, and now you can buy for some ungodly amount of money a case of new Coke in a Stranger Things three box. Let's go back to new Coke when it actually came out that it was so revolting. People argued to bring Coke Classic back, and that's why we have that brand. That's consumerism and the whole point of what the movie is not so much against, but what punk rock was against was this selling out. 
people you know, you're going to be a sellout. It's not something to say because you have a mohawk. It's not buying into the bullshit. It's not trying Coke classic because they ruin new Coke. It's stop buying dumb shit. Selling out has absolutely nothing to do with making money. Selling out has everything to do with changing your values and changing who you are for something like money or fame or just notoriety in some form. Selling out Which is Which auto out does not do. Like people no. argue that auto is a sellout by the end of the movie. He's got he, a job. It's not that he well, Freddie got a job. What an asshole. That seems to be a punk rock theme thing. But it's not so much that he got a job. It's that he gets the suit and tie and becomes the old guard. And no, it's not that you become the old guard. But sometimes you have to realize you fit in to get through. And that's what he's doing. Being a punk has nothing to do with your leather studded armband or how extensive your patches is on your leather jacket being a punk has nothing to do with how hardcore your band is being a punk is freedom it's a fucking costume it's a way of life thank you for completing that quote have some respect for the fucking dead yeah i'd say pretty much repo man is quintessential 1980s it's quintessential punk rock film it's probably like there's been on several other punk rock films i think slc punk got pretty close i think there's a, a couple repo other man get, too got pretty close but repo man is the essential punk rock film it wraps up and for not even being that much about punk music at all it has almost nothing to do with the punk rock scene it just is fucking punk rock well that's the point too is it's from a punk's perspective Perspective. Uh, once you're already submersed in the music and that's your life, it's your life. So you're taking it from a punk standpoint. And that's kind of a, a guy. I've totally skipped over this. I wrote up the beginning of the show. That's a really cool selling point of this movie is MCA got the soundtrack and put it out. And, you know, the cover of the soundtrack is Emilio standing in a vest uh, or by the Malibu. And it looks punk. It looks tough. He looks like a guy that you'd want to hang out with at a show. He looks like he'd be at a black flag show. Then you flip it over and you see, you know, like, wow, circle jerks are on this fears on this. This is pretty punk rock. Before this, you hadn't really had a massive compilation soundtrack of music. Most things were somebody brought in to score it, an orchestral score, an OST. And uh, uh, beforehand, Easy Rider was really a, the first compilation soundtrack. And of its time, it used some really esoteric bands. It had the Birds, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Bob Dylan, who was a massive success at the time. But two different Steppenwolf songs. It was using music to translate emotion, which most people wouldn't do. They would use somebody to score like uh, Cronenberg uses Howard Shore for almost absolutely everything. And that's how he sets his emotion. And that's what he's really into. And he just you could not imagine a Cronenberg movie placed to music. It just wouldn't work that way. This soundtrack, it's definitive and a, a wholesome part of the movie, as is with Easy Rider. The soundtrack is a driving force where you take the lyrical content and the emotion of the music to bring you to a higher level. And it's something that helped expose punk rock to a more mainstream audience where guys like Keith Morris, who had been kicked out of Black Flag and started his own outfit out in L.A., they started becoming the fourth wave, the more successful wave. They broke the barriers. These were the people that Tippy Gore was fighting against and trying to get labeled and censored. And things like Repo Man really pushed the message of punk rock forward as Easy Rider pushed the hippie movement, not even so much the hippie movement, but just the expression of people in the United States that didn't agree with, just like Ronald Reagan, LBJ, uh, who was 68, 69 LBJ, that didn't want to 
agree with the guard. It was it's counterculture. And whether you want to admit it or not, the hippies, the punks, the goths, the mods, rappers, whatever, it's all counterculture. It's all uh, this subgroup and all of us band together in art form one way or another. Well, it's also a group that refuses to rest on its laurels and just this is the way. I mean, there's a lot of punks who got older and went, no, what punk rock was all about. It, it's just dead. And you can't like, well, maybe the music in that scene is dead, but punk rock in itself being a punk has more to do with just how far you're willing to go for progress in general. And I don't even mean to get into like liberal bullshit, blah, 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 blah. But it's about constantly fighting for a new future and not like resting on what you think. This is good enough and we'll just stay at this. We're just going to maintain a status quo for the, you know, for the remaining years that Earth is still viable. And that's just bullshit. It's all about continually progressing, progressing something new in the future, maybe in an egalitarian society. Who knows? Guys like Harley Flanagan want you to think that all hardcore about are all hardcore about is about is violence and being from the streets and being authentic to who you are and always being a badass. And that's that's part of the problem with that Jocko homo metal scene of we got to beat people up and always do this and blah, blah, blah. And if you don't listen to Slayer, that's not the point. You have to take the art and and integrate it into your life and realize the message behind things. And it's not always what you want it to be. It's not about uh, other people or betraying the scene because they're posers or they got a job. It's about a unification of a thought and idea about freedom, about the representation of freedom. And anti-commercialism doesn't mean don't buy a Coke. It means don't feed into the bullshit. Keep your antenna up and be yourself. Find who your individual self is but don't go on a cross-country murder spree to do it. Sometimes being nothing is fine. Sometimes you're just a repo man. Sometimes you run into a pole and hit your dick like Mohawk Man did. (laughs) It's just life, you know? I mean, you walk into a liquor store to buy some nondescript drink with your boss and one of your friends is robbing it. And I mean, that's that's one of my favorite scenes is, you know, you're, you're just a suburban white punk, just like me. Yeah, but it still hurts. That's the movie and that's life. Yeah, but it still hurts no matter how tough your leather jacket is or how shiny and cool your spikes are. It's still going to hurt. It always is going to hurt. That's just life. So that is the six or first greatest hits of Death by DVD, our six first movies on the greatest hits list, the greatest movies ever made, according to us. I'd say so, yes. So far, we have yet to completely disagree. I'm sure you're going to pull something out of your ass at some point where I'm going to go, what the fuck are you even talking about? I love this movie, man. What are you talking about? This is great, and I just won't agree. Well, Sometimes see, we have vastly different tastes. I don't know. With this segment, I don't think loving something should consist of why it's one of the best movies of all time. I think you really got to put some effort into these. Thought. Yeah, this is what we want to do as a you whole with this hit, segment. There are certain goalposts you have to hit for this, and it, it's not just, I really enjoyed the story. It has to do with the like the production design. It has to do with the music. It has to do with the direction. It has to do with the acting. It has to do with absolutely everything. It has to do with how much the story resonates. So, I mean, it's it's not just just a vapid... 
even any of the movies that would be on my top list for this year in no way, shape or form would be on this list. I wouldn't call Midsummer one of the greatest movies of all time. Just, oh, yeah, it's like on the Midsummer episode, we I actually discussed and brought up. I wanted to uh, include Mandy on the greatest movies of all time list. And I started thinking about it and just it doesn't fit to me. It's I, I love yeah, it. It might hit at some point, but it might. Right but now, at the same time. Early. Well, I mean, there's just certain things that I, I really, really love that could be considered some of the best movies of all time, but would just be ridiculous to, to throw on this list. Like, uh, I don't know, Phantasm. It's a, speak. Yeah, it's just fantastic, really great movies that I'm passionate about, but I just don't deserve to be on the list. So I want to try and, uh, as I'm sure you do, keep this pure. I mean, some things like uh, here's an example of something I'll pick in the future is one of the greatest movies of all time. Possession. That's going to be a tough one to argue because it's very much an art film, but I, I think it has redeeming facts. Uh, there, I mean, you can back possession up any damn day of the week for a list like this. What you've got to avoid is stuff that is like I love creep show and I think it hits some major heights and I think it like it broke new ground It did a bunch of things but at the same time I still wouldn't consider it one of the best movies ever made yeah, so this will get interesting as we continue down the rabbit hole of the greatest hits and compile our massive list you the audience uh, can keep track of this you know uh, make us the official list of everything here's an, a marathon for you that's what everybody wants to do they want to fill their time as much as possible, as much media as possible. So here's six movies, three for me, three from Alexander Nash that we hope you will enjoy. If you don't, there's something wrong with you. Or it's just you don't appreciate actual cinema. Not that your taste is just garbage. It's just if you're going to be a real cinephile, you got to get in fucking dirty. And I'm not a big fan of like the 1930s, the 1940s even up to the 1950s in cinema, but there are chunks in there that I really appreciate. Like Casablanca to a lot of people might be one of the greatest films of all time. Not to me personally. So it's going to be a wild list. Yeah, I think the Maltese Falcon, if we're going to do Bogart or classics like that is a far superior movie. I mentioned the African queen earlier. That's again, a far superior movie treasure of Sierra Madre. That's a far superior movie. I dig into everything and everywhere. Apocalypse now. <laughs> Uh, that's that's one we'll get to. That's I don't think a big disagreement on one of the greatest movies of all time. But there's just so many different cuts Dead and Ringers. versions. Dead Ringers definitely. Cronenberg will appear on the list a lot. I'm sure Lynch will appear on the list a lot. Which that's a big debatable one because a lot of people hate David Lynch. Uh, experimental okay. stuff. Right I mean, now, real quick, top two David Lynch films. All right, you got to give me a second. Well, we can't have dead air, though. What are yours? Do you have them off the top of your head? Uh, I, I, it's more just I wanted to see where you're at, but uh, I would have to go with Blue Velvet and Lost Highway. Blue Velvet, definitely. You know, I this is a weird one, but I, I'm really fond of The Elephant Man. But no, I, you know, that's not my answer, though. I'm oh God, I don't want to pick the same ones as you. Inland Empire is is nowhere near the top of the list. Not that would been close. Yeah. Eraserhead um, at a time in my life several years ago, I would have said Eraserhead because I, I understood it completely. And I've grown past that point. And I feel weirdly I'm, I'm more in a lost highway point of my existence. 
you know, um, yeah, Elephant Man and Blue Velvet. Elephant Man's up there, yeah. Like, David Lynch I, I love Firewalk really With movies. Me. I'm a big Firewalk With Me fan, but you have to, you can't he just... hit some fucking heights, man, and hit some goddamn lows, too. That dude's career is fucking all over the place. Well, his career is quite like his film. It's just a dream. And I was I was going off into this Taoist stuff earlier about how everything's sort of predetermined and it just is what it is. And David Lynch really accepts that. And he just does what he does. It doesn't matter if you receive it well or what you think about it. He's gone out there and he's done it. And I think what people miss, even with critics, a lot of our fellow critics miss the point that you can criticize and talk about anything, but it, in the long run, it doesn't matter. It's uh, transient and it's all just bullshit because the artist has put a creation out and the artist has fulfilled their own goal by doing that. It's it's birth. That's why most people that are creators in that extent really aren't uh, hands-on parents or, or brought into that circle because we've spent our entire life creating and that's the point you know once you have mastered creation and continue to do it and like somebody like david lynch each film is a child each film is a representation of his growth whether it be in a dreamlike state or reality and like it aired he's a he's a dreamlike kind of guy i got nothing man <laughs> how long so, is this episode where are we even at we are definitely over two hours we have uh succeeded in our greatest hits of all time and gotten into a pretty detailed discussion of david lynch which you know it all just fits david lynch we can even do a greatest directors of all time kind of thing at some point which i would certainly put him terrence malick uh alex cox a lot of the people that were brought up on the show tonight on the list of greatest directors even oliver stone de palma i wouldn't give it but uh oliver stone i'll give one of the greatest directors of all time carpenter john carpenter certainly is one of the greatest directors of all time there's a lot of people that uh we can again compile a list but it looks like we're we're hitting happy trails i think personally we should go get sushi and i'll pay for it uh, I don't have a Repo Man quote. Um, I'm, I'll sing a Circle Jerk song, lounge style. Just uh, shit hits the fan. Just call John Wayne a fag. That's that's all we really want to hear. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Yeah, well, it's true. I installed a two-way mirror in his house, and he answered the door in a dress. It's a true fact. So he's trans. Uh, that's not what Tracy Walter said. Okay, he's a crossdresser. There's a lot of more insensitive dialogue from Repo Man, but uh, all of it is just hysterical. Most of it comes from Harry Dean Stanton, and uh, I don't really think he brought no a lot. No Christians either. Yeah, no commies in my car, but I don't think he brought a lot of character to the table. I think that was a lot of Harry Dean Stanton, which is glorious. He was one of the greatest people to ever live on this planet. But I think that's going to do it for this episode of Death by DVD. The ashtray is full, and the bottle is empty you got anything i got dick i got nothing let's go commit some crimes you have been listening to death by dvd at this time death by dvd leaves the air death by dvd is recorded in front of the Studio audience and broadcast from on top of Blue Crystal Sunshine Mountain in town, USA. The transmitters on top of the Empire State Building transmitting 100.
of polarization. We at FIDD wish you a pleasant night and a good tomorrow. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. Wishing you a good night. Ladies and gentlemen, our national anthem.